Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. No greater faction than the action movie scene. Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. Your satisfaction, action on the silver screen. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Action Addicts Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Wiley, and you are listening to this week's episode. This week's episode is on a classic action film starring Antonio Banderas, and it is, as you will have seen, Desperado. Today we're joined by an aspiring stuntman and a great member of the Action Twitter community. I will leave him to introduce himself but we had a fantastic chat about a film that meant a lot to him personally. This was his pick, as you'll hear me repeat in but a moment. I'm not going to spend very much time in this intro, as this is another long one at the end of the day. Didn't realize how long we've been going for. We go really off topic, uh, so sorry about that. And I also have to give this episode a bit of a disclaimer. The audio sucks. <laughs> not all the way through, but there are points where the audio is not the best. I have spent far longer than normal editing this episode and trying to get the audio where it normally is, and it's had mixed results. So I'm sorry this is the best that I could do like I said, most of it is fine, but there are going to be bits where there's a lot of background noise that I couldn't get out, unfortunately, like way more than I remember when we were having the conversation. And there are some bits where feedback and distorted recordings meant I had to do some clever cutting to make some of the sentences work. So if you don't notice the thing, brilliant. If you notice some things that seem a bit funky, then that's probably why. So I thought I'd just say it now in case you're like, what on earth is going on in some sections? But for the most part, I don't think it's that much of a problem. I just wanted to stress that it's not you. Um, it, you know, it's, it's not a problem on your end. It is baked into the recordings, unfortunately. So with that said, I'm going to leave you with the me of the past because like i said there's a lot of podcasts to get through so i'll see you afterwards for the outro guys all right thank you very much to myself for yet another amazing intro hopefully i've told you that the film we're going to be doing today is desperado and i am joined by somebody new today and we are going to be popping his podcast, Cherry, I've been informed. So why don't you introduce yourself, friend, and tell everyone who you are. Yes, uh, my name is Aaron Vargas. Uh, you probably follow me, um, Kickass Vargas, at Kickass Vargas on Twitter, Avar Stunts on Instagram. I, uh, I'm i just a dude trying to get into the stunt industry. I love martial arts films. Um, that's where my passion grew uh, for martial arts films. And now I'm trying to get into the industry. So hopefully by the time this episode comes out, you'll see like a short fight that I did for the first time and um, just building my way up however I can. So, you know, thanks to Scott for having me on. I'm really excited to be on my first podcast formally. 
if that fight scene is out at the time that this episode goes live, it will be linked in the show notes. So please do go and check it out. Thank you. It, it will be short, by the way. It will, it will be short. It won't be long or anything. It's just something cool. But it's like it's baby stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. The other thing is that uh, this was actually your pick. I love this film. So I had absolutely no problem with that. But it was very much you that wanted to uh, do Desperado. So I was wondering if you would like to tell us why. Yeah, Desperado is a special film for me. Um, I, I grew up um, watching Bruce Lee, Jackie Chan, Van Damme. As a kid, um, I'm 23, so I was born in 98. Um, so all these films were introduced to me through VHS. And this one was different because I was used to martial arts. I was used to um, like canon films and all that stuff. But then I, I see uh, this movie called Desperado and Once Upon a Time in Mexico together because, it, you know, um, when I was like five, the Once Upon a Time in Mexico came out and my dad was like, you got to see Desperado. And I was like, OK, I was like, I was a little kid. They were very lean with what I watched. So anyways, uh, they give me they let me watch Desperado. My life was changed. I saw people that looked like me, basically. You know, I Robert Rodriguez is a Mexican-American. He is a Mexican director and he hires Mexican actors and Mexican crew. And Desperado was the uh, was the epitome of that. All, basically, all Mexican crew almost it seems like. And it was cool seeing people that look like me on the screen being badass. Uh, granted, Banderas is Spanish; he's not exactly Mexican, but it's still representation of uh, Latinos, Latinas, and um, Hispanics. So it's it's really cool to see. So that's why I wanted to choose it because it, it was a really formative time in my life. It was my first introduction to John Woo, and I didn't even know it. So for years, that movie has a special place in my heart. Yes, uh, you definitely can't not see the John Woo inspirations in this film. I was thinking when I rewatched it that if Robert Rodriguez says he didn't know who John Woo was, then somehow some force of cosmic energy was guiding him along that path. <laughs> and, and we're going to talk about that, too, because I've noticed some homages uh, in terms of uh, action design where um, he takes from Woo. He homages Woo in, in certain ways. So we'll get into that later in the discussion. But yeah. I think it's interesting because um, I just this second realized, as you said it, you are the first person on this podcast who is younger than me. Ninety uh, percent of the people that come on are actually older than me. So to it's it's funny to get a different perspective because I watched Desperado when I was a kid, but I definitely watched it when it came out, not in the cinemas because I've said this before, but just briefly in the UK, you can't you can't and you couldn't, especially back then get into a film unless you are the right age whereas in america you can sort of depending on the age go in if you're younger but with your parents that did eventually come to the uk uh <laughs> due to a film called spider-man uh where they could not make up their mind what they were going to age rate it as so they invented a new age rating specifically for spider-man that then replaced our old age rating of 12 for 12A, which meant under 12s had to be accompanied by an adult. And that's basically what every MCU film tries to go for now, because that's the one that makes all the money. Obviously, 15, you have to be over 15. So, yeah, it, it, it's, it's funny. Like, I remember in the 90s when this came out, cinemas, at least where I grew up, were very stingent and strict with that. Whereas these days, it feels like nobody really cares anymore. You know, everything's on streaming. There's no way to check ages. People are watching stuff they probably shouldn't at much younger ages. I remember um, Once Upon a Time in Mexico, this film's sequel. I watched it on DVD, even though I don't think that one was as high age rating, but I can't remember. But yeah, I remember seeing that on DVD uh, at my with my mom and my stepdad. 
And uh, yeah, I'm right. That was a 15 here, not an 18, because that wasn't quite as bad, uh, at least with the content. But um, yeah, it's nice to hear somebody who, same as I, didn't watch this in the cinema, but yet it didn't stop you from loving the film, which is a debate that I see happen on film Twitter quite a lot of, oh, did you really get the full experience unless you watched it in the cinema? It's like, yes, yes, you can. Um, I mean, you know, in the 90s, it was slightly different because I think the biggest television that I'd ever seen was about, you know, six inches long. But these days, especially, you know, the televisions are like the length of our walls. It's fine to not go to the cinema. And we both watched these films without it and we still love it. It's not a problem, guys. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite movie experiences was on a, was on my, my grandma's TV. She rent, she let me rent uh, Street Fighter 2, the animated movie. Ah, oh, classic. Classic. And uh, I, I love it to this day. And um, I watched it on her like TV upstairs, just alone, by myself, um, cloudy afternoon, put it in. My life was changed. Not in a cinema. I was in a room by myself. It was, it was just a, a wonderful experience with movies. doesn't always have to be in the theater. Theater's awesome. Theater's great. And I hope, it, I hope they stay. But it's not to, to say that you're not going to get the same experience. You know, it's it's a little ignorant. So oh, I, I 100% agree. It's just one of those things that unfortunately, partly because I think people are terrified that cinemas will go away if everybody starts yeah. deciding that you don't need to see a film in the cinema. Um, and partly because I think people don't like watching uh, streaming films like the latest releases, I think. You know, certain ages especially would prefer to go to the cinema. But that also goes hand in hand with the fact that a lot of people didn't have necessarily the greatest home cinema experience. I mean, I was very lucky. I'm going off topic, but this is relevant. So my dad is very much a audiophile. He likes to have proper sound, which basically meant that from a very young age, I grew up knowing what a surround sound home system was. And he was very technical minded, so he could do it all himself. He could wire it all in. He had a subwoofer. He had this big amplifier. And like I said, surround sound speakers. And it got upgraded every few years. So, yeah, saying, you know, that the home cinema experience isn't as good. Well, my, mine pretty much was, to be frank. But I, I know that not everybody would have had that. But in my opinion, like now, we just have a television. I don't have a sound bar. I don't have a surround sound. I'm not really that fussed. I don't feel like I'm losing out. Um, if anything, I prefer it because you don't have other people ruining the film for you because not everybody treats going to the cinema as something that other people value. And a lot of people just do it as a way to kill time. They go on their phones, they talk, they make ridiculous amounts of noise, or they find things to complain about and think that the best time to start talking about it is while the film's still on. And it drives me absolutely insane. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, and I agree with everything you said. I, I think the reason why uh, you'll see a lot of people my age on film Twitter discussing how much we want movies to stay in the theater. And that's only because we feel like we probably haven't had enough theater experiences. Most of the people who are saying, like, I don't really care for our 40 years into their lives already had all these amazing experiences. Maybe they can do without, you know, just having their home theater and stuff. Some of us feel like we love the movies. We love going to the movies. We love experiencing these. At some point down the line, though, I'm sure that I'm even going to be like, I'll wait till DVD. I'll wait till Blu-ray, you know. But right now, I'm just like super like, I, I love cinema and all that stuff. I'm still in that very like, very young 
you know, useful. I need to see everything in the cinema age, you know, sure. It will die down eventually though. Oh, no, I mean, I'm kind of in between, which is funny because uh, I think the vast majority of people that have come on are in their forties uh, and you're in your twenties and I'm dead in the middle at 30. So it's actually kind of funny to get three different perspectives. Um, Cause I definitely agree with you that I love going to the cinema, but I am immensely happy when I walk in and there's nobody else there, just maybe a couple of people. And yes. uh, that's, that's perfect for me. Oh, the opposite to that is I don't mind it being packed if you're going like on opening night, because the people there, they're there for the film. Like they're there to have the experience. I mean, regardless of what I think of the film, my personal favorite cinema experience that I've ever had was Star Wars The Force Awakens, seeing it at a midnight release when that film came out. I had never seen so many people where I grew up, especially to turn up for a Star Wars film. Everybody pretty much was dressed up as a Star Wars character. I'd never seen that where I grew up. And everybody was just electric because nobody knew what this new chapter of Star Wars was going to be. I remember the logo appeared and everybody just fell quiet. And then when the LucasArts bit appeared, there was one guy that just went, whoa! And it's like, nothing's happened yet. We've just seen a logo. And a whole cinema just erupted into laughter. And and yeah, like that's a positive experience. But on the negative, a couple of weeks later, I took my dad to see it. Because yeah, I, I it, at the time it was like, come on, you got to go see it, you know, because there's spoilers. And uh, this group of kids sat behind us, and before the film even started, proceeded to uh, rattle off every single spoiler of the film, starting with uh, which characters died, because they'd seen it before. Little shits. Yep. And the thing is, <laughs> like, uh, their parents were sat with them. They just didn't give a shit. They were just sat on their phone. They just wanted a way to uh, keep them quiet for a couple hours. Eventually, my dad had enough and uh, told him to shut the fuck up. But um, yeah. and they did, <laughs> Good. and they and Good. they did because they weren't bad kids. They just weren't being parented. But that's a completely different. Right. Um, that's a completely different uh, argument. But my point yeah, is, no. is, I think depending on what cinema experience you have overall, like the majority of, will depend on whether or not you like going to the cinemas. Like I've been during the pandemic and it's been great because everybody has to stay away from you there can't be too many people and everybody is you know um being respectful because they have to but the second those laws dropped the second those rules went out the window i mean the state of one of the cinemas that i went to there was food and drink like literally caked into the seats in some of the seating areas there was just spills that hadn't been cleaned up and i'm like yeah that didn't last long did it for for like one one solid moment, everybody did what they were supposed to do, and then the second the rules dropped, everybody just forgot how to behave. You know? Yeah. And just to clarify my stance, if you don't want to go to the cinemas, I am not going to be that sunny bunch asshole. If you don't want to go to cinemas, that's cool. Movies should be, you know, available to you as well. I just want to say that because I'm all about the the movie experience and all that stuff. But if you want to stay at home and watch movies, especially in this age that we're in right now with the with the pandemic and everything then yes please you know feel free to i i don't want people to think that i like <laughs> am hating on them because i know some people will go to that that level and that's absolutely insane to think especially in this age yeah but anyway yeah. uh that rant aside desperado your thoughts go 10 out of 10 would recommend <laughs> perfect perfect cinema man <laughs> yeah i love it 
I'm not sure I'd give it a 10 out of 10 as such, but I do agree it's definitely up there. Uh, it had, yeah. It's actually been a very long time since I'd sat down and watched Desperado, and mm. I had forgotten just how good it actually is. Yeah. I, I'm also, because again, this happens a lot on this show, I did start checking and uh, surprising nobody there. There were cuts made, there were issues that the film censors had with this film, but as per usual, oh. the UK then decided that it wanted to cut out more <laughs> stuff. Oof. So I'm I'm pretty sure that some of the stuff that I don't remember as well is probably uh. because it didn't exist in the UK version oh, wow. that I had seen. Because this, this happened with uh, the very first film I did, Commando. Um, I already knew about, I already knew about that one, but there's so many films that come out on Blu-ray that are older films, especially action films, yeah. that right. will will say they're uncut, and you go uncut. Yeah. I didn't know they'd been cut, and then you look into it, and it's like, <laughs> oh yeah, the, the 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 BBFC has made random cuts because they didn't like right. you know a bit of gore here or a big action sequence, and they they cut it up, and yeah. you know they and it's all about just basically trying to make the age rating. 18 as opposed to like adult and it's yeah. it's it's always like one sequence in desperado's case it's probably it was probably the sex scene um, yeah in, in, probably. Com in commando's case <laughs> it was the part where arnie you know literally starts cutting people up for like oh. maybe five ten seconds but you know that was enough to have to make them make those edits you know yeah the bbfc's always had weird rules i think even the the nunchuck scene in the ninja turtles movie the live action yes um <laughs> was cut right because yes. of the nunchuck rule yeah yeah i don't know what it is about nunchucks like they the the nunchucks always get get shafted for some reason in the bbfc i mean um i don't think they have those rules anymore i'm pretty confident that the nunchucks are okay now but yeah, yeah. i i don't know um they still do weird stuff to this day uh yeah i i, I honestly just think it's a bunch of people that are so out of touch that they they're trying to apply archaic rules to things that they no longer understand. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of censoring weapons, I'm surprised this whole movie didn't get censored. There is some crazy weaponry in this in Desperado. Very there, creative there stuff. There is, there is. Um, so for anyone who's not seen this film, I usually always say this, but I've just a second realized I've forgotten in the last couple episodes. But obviously we're going to spoil the shit out of a film that was made in 1995. So if you haven't seen it, and you would like to see it before we start talking about it, now is the time to, to stop and go find it. If you're in the UK, I can tell you for a fact that the film is on Netflix that you can watch free of charge, because I did that even though I own the film. But I couldn't be bothered to go and get the disc because I'm lazy, so I'd watch it on Netflix. <laughs> but we're going to be talking about spoilers, so that's your last and only warning. So for those of you who don't know, this film is actually a sequel to another film called El Mariachi, which was also made by Robert Rodriguez, but it did not star Antonio Banderas. And it is not an English spoken film, which is why Desperado made the very wise decision to basically incorporate bits of El Mariachi's story into Desperado. It is a sequel, but you really don't have to have seen El Mariachi. It covers the only really important bits you need to understand what's happening and why and even then even if you've seen el mariachi which i have but i didn't rewatch it for this uh, podcast i still don't actually think it, it adds that much to it because it's a completely different actor it, it was made for seven thousand dollars if i remember correctly 
Um, it was very much like an amateur film. It was Robert Rodriguez finding his feet. And this film kind of goes back in and just surgically fixes. They reshoot a number of scenes that were in El Mariachi for flashbacks. So if you never see El Mariachi, if you've, if you've seen this film and you didn't even know that, you're not missing out. Don't panic. Yeah. And, and to, if you don't know this, I'm going to blow your mind. Um, Carlos Gallardo, who was the original El Mariachi, yeah. is in Desperado as his friend. Okay. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting how you brought him back for a whole different character <laughs> sitting next to his original. Well, um, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying that that's because he is producer on both this and Once Upon a Time in Mexico. So he oh. was still involved in making these films, even though he, I believe, quite wisely decided that perhaps his acting skills was not on the same level as one Antonio Banderas. <laughs> yeah. When I was watching this movie, you know, I was like, ah, oh, it sucks that Carlos didn't get a chance to do it. But then you watched Banderas and there's like a coolness to him that's like unmatched, you know? And this is like, again, we people talk about this now, actually, um, the lack of sexiness in like modern movies and modern blockbusters. Like, there's a certain sex appeal that like Antonio Banderas, Sama Hayek have that unfortunately we don't really see much in like action movies, you know. Um, well, you don't really see them in any movies. Yeah, well, it was true. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, there's something that Antonio Banderas has that not many people at all have. So, you know, it's cool. It's cool still. Yes, I 100% agree. Um, audiences or audiences, listeners. <laughs> will have already heard but this is the second time that antonio banderas has graced this particular show as previously i did an episode on assassins but you won't have heard it yet because it's not out yet we talked uh, sorry say that again you cut out oh sorry no no i love i love assassins i'm so glad you're talking about that it's like my dad's like favorite movie so um can't wait for this episode <laughs> Yes, um, this this is the only problem with um, I, I I'm pretty good at recording things in advance for both listeners and yourself. So uh, this happened a few times. By the time that episode comes out, you will have heard it probably several weeks ago, and then your episode will come out, and then the people listening will be like, "Hang on, how long ago did you record this?" And it's like, "Yeah, I'm several weeks in advance of what's actually out when I record," which is great but it does mean that there's quite the delay sometimes between me talking about what's happening like in current events and you hearing it, which is one of the reasons why I always record my intro and my outro at the time. So I can try and make that not quite so jarring. <laughs> yeah, Banderas in the 90s. To me, Banderas actually is kind of like peak 90s. Um, even though he had quite a good career in the 2000s as well, he made so many films in the 90s that, kind of personified what the evolution of the action film had kind of become obviously in the 80s you did have uh sex appeal you did have the big guns the explosions and the very attractive girls but in the 90s it's often accused of being the era where everything got turned up to 11 to the point that things just got ridiculous you know you get so many over the top action films of which desperado can definitely fall into especially with its uh uh, John Woo inspired action sequences. However, I think the 90s is also where the sex appeal was very much at the forefront of a lot of films. You had so many erotic thrillers, and I think action films especially saw that and went, we can do that. And people like Banderas were at the forefront of uh, people's minds, but you had so many others as well. I mean, 
not that he counts, but it was a turning point for action films because you had people like Seagal coming in and kind of changing the game. You had Speed with Keanu Reeves. You had all these other guys coming in who were kind of not replacing the 80s stars because they were still there as well, but they were definitely having this transitional period where the way that people thought of action films was leaving and a different way of doing it was fast approaching and the matrix would eventually come along and just smash that to pieces. And this is the way we do it for the next 10 years. But this is kind of made in that period where it was changing, but nobody knew what it was yeah, going to change sure. to. And I, I would argue that like Tony Banderas and, and Keanu Reeves are like part of like the handsome action star, you know, Stallone, Schwarzenegger, Seagal, they're not exactly good looking guys. They're really jacked. They have skill. But the idea of a handsome actor playing this action role, you know, was started, I think, mid 90s. That's how I take it, at least. Yeah, I mean, um, Van Damme, I think, uh, could, oh, yeah. could still qualify. But yeah, no, I think it's um, uh, I, I don't really even want to include Seagal in any of this because he's kind of like this weird anomaly and in, uh, in the backdrop of all of them so i kind of ignore uh -huh. him but uh, 100%. he yeah. he does count for this example as that it's not necessarily that they were um just handsome because again in the 90s a, a lot of people would would have put seagull in that bracket but it's the fact that they were they were not muscle-bound guys they were not over-the-top martial artists either they were sort of in that mid-ground of these are people with skills but these are people that, if you squint and close your eyes, could they be every man? I mean, they're not, but you could kind of trick yourself into thinking, yeah, yeah, that could be me if I put on a leather coat, you know? <laughs> yeah, they're not exactly Bruce Willis, everyday man. They're like this interesting little, they're in this box. Yeah, um, you know, they're not, like you say, Bruce Willis, Harrison Ford. They're not going to be your, uh, we're just everyday guys that knows how to throw a punch. We're sort of that next level in between where they're not jackie chan levels of we're gonna roundhouse kick everybody in the room we're not van damme but they're not every man they have this lovely in between which i think is what gave them their appeal of like you say they're very attractive so nobody objected to seeing them on the screen and they were kind of leading the the new age of action films um some of that also came because the people making the films were also new. You know, you had a lot of new talent coming in, like you say, with Robert Rodriguez and um, same with Keanu Reeves. You know, they were all of them were trying to emulate what they were seeing coming out of Hong Kong at the time with John Woo, but also several other types of filmmakers. You had um, I'm not even going to pretend to try and pronounce their names because without them in front of me, I know I'm going to get it wrong. So let's pretend I said something smart there. Uh, but everybody understands what the point is I'm trying to say. At the time, Hong Kong was what everybody was trying to imitate. And then until Absolutely. they actually had the smart move to bring the people across from Hong Kong to make said films, then it was a case of, OK, these guys know what they're doing. Let them do it. They'll make us money. But I like these films where you had people that were trying to put their own spin on it because yes, Rodriguez was inspired by there, but he is always from day one had his own style of filmmaking. Yeah, very fresh and inventive. So this film opens with uh, a character that I completely forgot was in it. Uh, Steve Buscemi is the narrator who basically tells a very tall tale about the biggest goddamn Mexican he's ever seen, which is <laughs> hilarious because I don't actually think Banderas is that particularly tall. 
<laughs> which is funny. He's five nine. Yeah, but uh, Danny Trejo is also in this film, so it's like, hang on. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's a very good intro. It gives you what you need to know about the character. It's very stylized, and it sets the film off with this um, air of mystery that really draws you in, and then you get this really nice gun, big gunfight uh, between Banderas and a bunch of nameless thugs. And I love Steve Buscemi at the beginning because his wordplay and the way he was just getting everybody to listen to him was so good. Um, and I love the the lighting on Banderas where, like he says, you know, it just seemed like no matter what he did, his face just wouldn't come out of the shadow. And I, I really like the way they did that to build up his presence when he finally did, you know, let off his guns and go ballistic. Yeah, when I was watching this scene, I also was like a big fan of that lighting trick they used. Because uh, when when the it was about to show his face, I was like, "How? Uh, wait, is it really going to come back down?" And yes, it, the lighting comes back down, hides a face, and I'm like super impressed by that, you know. And I love Buscemi as well. Uh, Buscemi was uh, a definitely a much needed like um, how do I say a comedic um, aspect of the film that was like much needed, in, like a very cool film, you know. Yeah, he definitely uh, brought levity but also grounded it a bit in the fact that he was the one that i think they brought in to say okay you need to kind of set this up so that banderas can go because we don't want to have him self-narrate we don't want to have to have him explain the story to everyone he meets it's like that's what you're here for you're going to set the story so that people that don't know what this world is now they know it doesn't matter that they haven't seen el mariachi it doesn't matter that they might not know the ins and outs of who this character is you're going to basically tell the tale like an old western because that's what this film is let's be honest it is just a western in modern day setting yeah and you know this is the story of the gunslinger who was in another town had an adventure there one and now he's heading your way and uh you seem to be the people that have annoyed him so best of luck yeah i'm off <laughs> <laughs> one thing i want to talk about this scene too um there's a couple of things I want to talk about, but like the representation of, of Mexicanos um, in movies, um, you know, a lot of times uh, young people like me will get up in conversations about films today that uh, whitewash uh, Latinos and Hispanics. Um, they won't hire darker skinned actors in the Heights was infamous for this, uh, for casting much lighter skinned actors um, instead of, you know, darker skinned Puerto Ricans. And, um, and in this movie, he's not afraid to show like darker skinned Mexican, actual looking Mexicans that were, um that looked like you know people that i grew up with you know and, and it's like i've seen my community in there uh in a way you know although it's a dirty grimy western the people in it you know i i can see like hey that looks like my uncle or this looks like my neighbor like i love that and rodriguez never shied away from like showing mexicanos you know for what you know for who they were and not being ashamed of that at all i really i really appreciate that and um and it goes like the action um he storyboarded i think this was like one of the only sequences he storyboarded and I was watching this uh, special feature. If anyone has a Blu-ray, look up the anatomy of a shootout because he talks in depth about this. But basically, this whole sequence is, is storyboarded because there are cartoony aspects when Banderas shoots the guy and he's like on a wire being pulled back like crazy, you know, um, or like like these cool little like um, choreography he's doing where he punches the guy behind him. Like he had a storyboard all that. That way they can get it down. Um, but as we see later on, uh, he actually takes up the concept of pre-vising before the Wachowskis even brought Yen Wu and, and made that a norm in Hollywood. He was pre himself by bringing a camcorder to some of these sets and planning out the shots and everything. So we'll talk about that later, but this one was strictly storyboard. 
Yeah, nice. I don't have this film on Blu-ray, so I haven't seen that. I, I, it does ring a bell. Uh, so it's possible that it might have been a special feature on the DVD originally, because um, I do remember, like, I used to watch all of the special features behind the scenes on films I liked. Unfortunately, especially now, trying to cram so many films in, I don't always have the time to uh, check out the special features, and that is one negative aspect of watching films on streaming is you don't get all of that there was a time when if you bought a film digitally you did also get that stuff but that seems to have long since been abandoned to try and give people all of that which is a shame because if you're interested it's always good to know yeah. it's a shame that stuff like that isn't just available on like youtube um, and i don't mean youtube specifically mm -hmm. but some platform somewhere like if if we use netflix as the example because that's what i watched it on it is a shame that they don't have a section just for like behind the scenes stuff. Like if you could go and just click on Desperado and then see, right, are there any behind the scenes making of? I know why that's not going to ever happen because there's server space that these files are stored on digitally. They, they don't want to take it up with stuff that they know we realistically is not going to get that much watched and it's not going to generate them any revenue. You know, you're not going to subscribe to Netflix to watch the behind the scenes of a film. You subscribe to watch the film and 90% of people will never see those making of, which is a real shame. Like I've got um, the steelbook of The Expendables, which has Inferno, the making of Expendables, which is literally the same length as The Expendables, but the making of. And uh, I think that's brilliant. Like it's almost essentially a documentary on how they made The Expendables and how Stallone basically fell apart whilst, watch whilst trying to make that film. And it makes watching the film very different when you know that him trying to run and the, the way he sort of flails about, that's not acting. Like he had nothing left by that point. <laughs> and it's the same with this. Like if you know how much work went into these sequences, I think it changes your appreciation for them. And like you said, so many people have a negative connotation for wire work because when you hear wire work, a lot of people immediately think of Wuxia films, but that's not just what wire work was used in. Like there's, there's lots of films that use these techniques long before people were familiar with the term wire work. And it doesn't have to mean that, you know, people are floating along the air, balancing on the edge of sword tips. It's, it's used for a lot of everyday action stuff of people getting pulled through walls, being flipped and landing safely. You know, that's, that's the bit that everybody always forgets is, yeah, it's cool to see somebody do these flips or get kicked through a wall. But at the end of the day, kind of helps if you're still going to be safe or at least as safe as you can be through it because yeah you can just kick somebody through the wall but you kind of need them to do it at least six or seven times to get the right angle so being able to repeat the motion is more important than making it look like you actually did it yes absolutely and that's why he storyboarded too because he did want like the stunt coordinators um i think the main guy was steve m davison that's the main stunt coordinator for the film uh, the storyboards gave the stunt coordinator an idea of what needed to be done to pull off these certain uh, shots, moves. So there was like a, in, in the anatomy of a shootout, there's like a, a quick clip of them, like at someone's house, pulling some stunt guy in wires to see how it's going to happen. So, you know, it's, you know, as if someone said, I don't like wire foo, I don't like all this stuff. It's like, well, it's probably in your favorite movie, probably in your favorite action movie. So, you know. So El Mariachi was made for like, nothing and i believe it got recognized because it was made for like a few thousand dollars but it made over a million which puts it in a very short list of films that have ever achieved that you know it was essentially an amateur film and it became a really big success because of how good it was 
this film about seven million and it made seven million nine hundred ten thousand in its opening weekend so it had already made its budget back uh before the first weekend had finished and when it it's this information seems incorrect but i'm gonna say it anyway but it says that it grossed in the US and Canada 25,400,000. But then it has the exact same number for grossed worldwide, which makes me think that this film didn't get released theatrically anywhere else other than America, which would actually make sense because I don't ever remember seeing this film posted. So to explain that, (laughs) where I grew up, there was only one cinema. There were obviously other cinemas, but you had to travel for them. So in my town, there was one cinema. It was very, very old, very regal. It looked amazing. Sadly, it it doesn't exist anymore. But it had these huge poster um, sequences outside that had all of the upcoming and latest releases to advertise. Because obviously this was back in the days before the internet. So you either saw the trailer in the cinema or you saw its poster. That was the only way you knew films were coming. And I don't ever remember Desperado being on the wall. Um, And I remember a lot of those films, because obviously being a kid, you know, you remember everything that you see because you want to go and see all this stuff. But I remember um, a lot of the films from that era, because 95 was the same year that uh, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the movie came out. And in the UK, it says that this released in uh, the following year in 96. But I'm wondering if... uh, you know, it just didn't get a theatrical release elsewhere and just went straight to home video. Yeah, my, my theory is that, you know, if you bring a martial arts, uh, Chinese martial arts film to America, to UK, to any other country, people will most likely see it. There's a big appeal for it. I almost think that maybe they didn't show it to uh, global audiences because maybe not much people out there were interested in a in a Mexican-centered action movie. Maybe they didn't think it was going to make enough money. I feel like there is a certain, like... Um, experience you have to have here in america to like understand like the importance of mexican culture maybe that's why they didn't do it i'm not sure um but I, that's interesting i didn't I had no idea it didn't get released globally it, it, like i said it might have it might just be that the imdb has the wrong information but it wouldn't be the first time even today there's films that will be released in the cinema for you guys that isn't here um and uh, a lot of the time it's based purely down to the marketing and the budget uh, uh, the most famous example that I could think of is actually John Wick, because when John Wick was first released, I don't think anybody was prepared for the absolute monolith that that was going to become. And I know for a fact that it was available on Blu-ray for you guys before it ever made it over here because they just hadn't put in that kind of uh, distribution deal. Um, I imported the Blu-ray uh, of John Wick before it ever got a release here because I was sick and tired of waiting for it. Eventually, I, it did release in cinemas. Um, I don't know how well it did here. I, I'm not looking, but I know that it was a good solid year in, in between where I could import it faster than I could get it in my own country. You know, that's that's how ridiculous it still is. Very, very interesting stuff here. I, I love hearing about like this um, this history. I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's funny because like. Um, Television, uh, films, all of it is generally a year behind you guys. It's it's changed in the last five years for most of the world. Uh, worldwide distribution dates has started to become a norm. But then oh, for some reason, there are certain studios that just don't want to embrace that. They seem to want to have an American release, a European release, and then an Asian release. Um, but obviously, 
the massive box office of China has kind of forced them to change their opinion on which box office is the most important. Another episode that is not out yet is about Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters, which was a complete flop, basically, in America, but made tons of money in Europe because the setting, the story, the fantasy creatures, it's all European. And what you were just saying about the fact that you know, maybe it didn't get the same appeal because outside of America, we don't know that much about Mexican culture. We don't know about that much to make those sort of connections. That's the exact same thing that uh, me and Liz from Schlockenor said about uh, Hansel and Gretel, which is that it didn't do very well in America because in order to perhaps appreciate it, you needed to have a good grounding of European folklore. And since it wasn't American folklore, well, Americans just were not interested or just didn't get it. Like you say, maybe it's just an ex another example of that happening here. Yeah, yeah. And even in America, I mean, we have the Midwest that's not really Mexican-centered either. So, you know, even parts of America aren't even familiar with the culture, you know. I live in California, Southern California, LA area. We're all about it, you know. So we're very familiar with it. So, yeah, after the uh, initial opening sequence, we get introduced more to Antonio Banderas's character, who yeah. is the mariachi. And he basically has a conversation and him and Steve Buscemi, they decide that he needs to go to this place that obviously it opened up. So he's going to go there and try to find this guy that at that point, you don't know what is the reason for it, but there is this person that he wants and he's like, yeah, I'm, I must kill this person. And you start getting flashbacks to stuff that happened in the El Mariachi film. But again, they're not the scenes from El Mariachi. They've been reshot. So they have Banderas in the role and the people that are around him are all different actors. So again, if you've never seen it, it fills in the blanks for you. You don't really, there's no lines of dialogue. It is just purely you infer what's happening and it makes complete sense. There's not, it's not like a, a really complicated storyline. It's just basically they killed someone he cared about. They also shot his hand and he's pissed and he spent the next however long it's been since then looking for the people responsible to get revenge because he had already killed all of them. They make that very clear. But the person that they were working for is who he's now hunting. Yeah, yeah. And I, I kind of want to talk about that credit sequence because uh, that one's a very special one to me, too. I mean, um, the, the song is called Cancion del Mariachi by Los Lobos and Antonio Banderas. He's the one singing it. Um, and so he has his two buddies with him. You know, there's this cool shot where he's on the bar counter and there's like a cool like lit up guitar behind him. Again, it's just setting up the coolness of the movie, the the um, the very slick style that Rodriguez has, you know, and I, I really do appreciate that because, again, mariachi music is not really shown in any movies at all. So to have this one do it really well um, with such a great song and, and, and great set piece, it's really cool. And um, yeah, yeah. I also want to bring it up. It's interesting how they had just had all these actors from El Mariachi's come for this one scene. Even Consuelo uh, Lopez, uh, who played the original love interest, is just there, just dead yeah. for this movie. <laughs> so um yeah i i really appreciate that credit sequence it's cool and even the logo is different on the in the movie itself than like what we're used to seeing on the dvd cover it's like super interesting yeah um i i i must echo what you just said i um i do love the the singing purely because i like antonio banderas's voice anyway um he has done other roles where he is also singing and obviously he has training in musical theater he's done 
um, performances where he's been the Phantom in Phantom of the Opera. Obviously, he was in um, Evita with Madonna. He's done a lot of musical stuff in his time as well as doing action films. So from day one, he's always been a, a diverse actor, in my opinion. He's not just somebody that was there to throw a punch or fire a gun. He's just always kind of gone wherever he wants to go. He he had carved himself out a name in action films, but it's kind of weird because he's one of the few people that did that whilst doing tons of films that had nothing to do with action films. Whereas I feel like a lot of the action guys that came before him and even a couple that came after, they can't do that. You you kind of get pigeonholed into this is the type of film you make, then that's all they'll ever make, even if they try and go outside of it. Banderas never had that problem. He did musicals, he did romantic comedies, he did serious dramas, and then you could almost guarantee every year-ish he would also do a big action film that would do really well. Um, one of my favorite films of his was actually The 13th Warrior, which I know a lot of people didn't really vibe with. But like you said, Assassins, Desperado, you had The 13th Warrior, and you had Zorro. Not, you know, he, he was just on a winning streak in the late 90s. He, he just couldn't do anything wrong, in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. And, and being, a mu- being into musicals, I mean, I'm sure he's familiar with choreography. So that lends itself to the action world a little bit when you have to memorize choreography, beats, all that type of stuff. So um, so I think maybe the transition for him was not as hard. And the thing that Rodriguez did smart was um, not having a stunt double for Banderas and instead uh, creating stunts that he just could do. So nothing too crazy that's going to hurt him. He would just come up with stunts that he thinks he could handle, which uh, which is really smart to do when you lend yourself to the strength of your actor. Yes, if I remember correctly, I want to say he also started off as like a soccer player. Like, I think that was his dream. So I think he was very physically fit and active anyway. But uh, yeah, he's just one of those people that whatever you ask him to do, he seems to be able to do, whether it's sword fighting, gunplay, dancing, singing. He's what he's what used to be referred to, I believe, as an all round entertainer. (laughs) Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm glad you put it that way. Yep. Jack of all trades. Exactly. I mean, the list of films he's done just goes on and on and on. And obviously, something that I think, especially these days, gets forgotten is he didn't just appear magically one day in the 90s. He actually was working all the way through the 80s and the early 90s doing Spanish films. So he had plenty of on-camera experience. He was not coming into this as a, a, a new guy. He had already got a huge following in Spain, in Europe. He'd already got a fairly sizable amount of knowledge on what he was doing. So unlike his co-star Salma Hayek that basically got a breakout role from this, he was kind of coming into this having already worked with Sylvester Stallone, having already done, you know, over a dozen movies and been on television. So I think this was the perfect storm of him to basically become the next big thing and pretty much what he did. <laughs> But uh, yeah, we then get him going into the town. We then get his meeting with the Cheech, whose name, who was playing the bartender. I don't think his character actually had a name. No, he, <laughs> Cheech Marin no. was playing short bartender. So uh, that's why I'm blanking yeah. on his name. They never gave him one. <laughs> and, uh, and if you notice in the, in the bar when Antonio comes in, there's a, a certain music cue. It's like a guitar playing and it plays throughout the movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's actually performed by um, by the guy that's next to Cheech Marin, and uh, oh, that guy's okay. name. Yeah, so he his band uh, he came in as uh, I think Los Plugs. It was like a LA punk rock band, but 
his other band Tito and the Tarantula um, performed that song. So, um, yeah, he was playing uh, Tavo, Tito Lariva. Is that right? Yeah, there you go. Yep, Tavo. Yeah, because um, the other person who we should probably mention is uh, Rodriguez's uh, longtime friend and collaborator, Quentin Tarantino, has a cameo in a scene just before this with, one. With, with, a, with a beautiful joke. Yeah, that joke kind of, uh, I was like, yeah, that, that really sounds like Tarantino just made that up on the spot. That, that feels yeah. like for half a second, he just walked in from another film set. It kind of was, it, it was one of those things where it's like, okay, that was funny, but Jesus, that took way too long to get there. Like, <laughs> I, I, I think in his mind, it was going to be shot like a, a tense sequence. Like the, you know, these guys had come in, they were just as dangerous as the men behind the bar and they were trying to, you know, assert their dominance. And of course it doesn't play that way at all because Cheech Marin just pulls out a gun and shoots the other guy. And I thought that was hilarious because after that point, Tarantino's whole character is just like, Oh, okay. Um, yeah, whatever, man. (laughs) I do like that. Tarantino had this really, I I love the joke. I think it's, I think it's funny for what it is because of how annoying it is. He's, he's being super annoying, irritating to these dudes. And they scare the shit out of him by shooting his partner in the head. And he just like stops in his tracks, stops talking, everything. And they're like, he didn't check out. And they point the gun at him. He's like, what you did? And then he's like, all right, okay, I'm going to chill. <laughs> wow. Yeah. As chill as that character could get anyway. Yes. I know. People forget how crazy Tarantino is sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And um, I, I mean, it's, it's funny too, because... When I saw him, I saw I was I had forgotten again, like he was in this film and I just thought I can't remember the the chronology of the films, but obviously this wouldn't be the last time Rodriguez would cast Tarantino in a project of his. Yeah, the next year I think was from Dust Till Dawn, right? Yeah, that's that's what I was trying to remember, but yeah, now you've said it, I think it was, and gave him a much bigger role in that working alongside Clooney. Yeah. Oh, if I can piggyback or backtrack real quick, just to the scene where we're introduced to Bucho. There's like a cool fight scene um, between like uh, they call him opponent in the in the cast, but he's like the dude that looks oh, like Antonio. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'd forgotten all about that sequence. You you go ahead. Uh, yeah, no. There's like a cool scene where like uh, this dude uh, is trying to get into the into the family, and Bucho basically is like, "Why are you fighting people? And people don't get out of here. Bring in Christos." And it's this cholo looking dude, bald with the mustache with the tats on him. Someone that uh, looks like someone you see here in LA, you know, um, you know, as the Mexican myself, I grew up around these around guys like, you know, like Christos. And but it's cool that he did martial arts. And I was watching this fight and I was like, dude, you don't see Mex- many like straight up Mexican martial artists like throwing like hook kicks, freaking uh, tornado kicks and stuff. It was like super cool to see. And I was like, damn, this is like throwing down. And uh, and he looks like a cholo. I love that. Um, so I just want to go back real quick and show appreciation for that because. Rodriguez was showing it all. Not only did he have gunplay, but he had a little bit of martial arts in there just, just to flex that he could feel a martial arts scene. I love that. Yeah, I must admit, as far as introductions go, that was a nice one because um, I'm, I did have the thought that it, because like you were saying, you don't see many films with um, this ethnicity of casting. And my brain did kind of go, it's, it's literally every single Mexican actor or everyone that has that look in one film like i know everybody in this film but because they play bad guys in other films you know the yes. <laughs> Bucho yes. and his group of, of people is like oh i know literally all of these because when your brain goes oh we need to cast some bad guys and they need to be mexican 
Yep, yes. I know exactly who you need. You need Carlos Gomez. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it just it just made me chuckle because um like you say, they uh what you just said, I was I had the same thought where it was like, did they did they actually go out of their way to find people that were also really good martial artists or was that pure coincidence that they they had cast these people and then they were like oh actually we've got a couple of martial artists in the crew let's do something with that um, i wonder which way around it was i know because christos the guy throwing the kicks that dude had form like that dude was like super in control of his movements there was no like doubling or whatever that dude was just straight up doing the moves like no problem and it was so good that rodriguez even like showed the same move like three times yeah. like in, in, in between cuts and i'm like oh okay well i'm not complaining no i'm a, that 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 was very um early 90s the way that that fight sequence was shot um like i said it, it did kind of remind me of a number of films at the time where they were trying to do the whole if you play the thing several times it becomes more powerful or oh we've got this really big move so we're going to show it from different angles and yeah, like you say, it was kind of like, how many different things can we squash into this film? I think what makes me laugh more than anything is they show off this guy who manages to beat, you know, the, the guy that comes in and, oh, okay, so he's a, he's a fighter, right? That never comes up again. Like, there's there's not a single other fight sequence after that. And he, all he right? does afterwards <laughs> is use a gun. So you think... Why did right. it, what? None of that even mattered. I kept I kept waiting for the point where he was gonna have like a hand to hand confrontation with Banderas, and it just never comes. Right. <laughs> I know. I was hoping he would like break the cast off of his leg and then just start kicking them like crazy. Um, that would have been cool. But yeah, I don't know. I, I guess budget reasons. I'm sure. They, I think they only had 38 days to shoot, which Rodriguez brings up because he's talking about how like hard boiled the killer. They had like 120. We had we had 38. So we had to squash all this in as much as we could so I, I you know i'm pretty sure if he had more time he probably would have put something in there well i also know that um some of the sequences that should have been in this film were unfortunately cut because the um sensor guys over in america just kept you know being a pain in the ass uh i can't remember which one it was i'm trying to remember because i it's annoying because i look it up and then I, when i want to go and um reference it the information refuses to appear before me but i know for a fact that there was a whole like end sequence that was shot but was never used because every time they tried to edit it down the film board in america basically kept going nah it's it's still too violent so rodriguez basically went oh you know what i'm not compromising it anymore and that's why after you know at the very end it just fades to white there is actually a huge big spectacle action sequence but he just oh gave up God. he gave up trying to get it in the film because they just kept saying it wasn't it was too violent it was too this it was too that so he went out oh, to hell with it and just took it out just took the whole sequence out and just decided that it would end on a fade wow i had no clue because as a kid i would watch that scene and he would fade to white and be like why didn't rodriguez just go all out i was so confused as a kid i was like oh man i wish i would have seen at least they showed bucho die but like yeah. everyone else, I was like, there had to be something there. Like, there's no way you didn't shoot something. So thank you for telling me that. I'm actually like, I was like, it was like a mystery in my head this whole time. Yeah, it's it's really frustrating because I obviously I look up stuff just in case. And it, it's really annoying me now. Oh, wait, this is it. I found, Okay, so I, I found it. I see now why I couldn't find it. It's because it was marked as a spoiler. So they were hiding it from me. So oh. <laughs> the MPAA gave the movie an nc-17 rating 
because of many deaths and action scenes that were not in the film were cut to get the R rating. And these include the death scenes of Pickup Guy and his friend at the bar, and apparently the death of Danny Trejo's character. So even though they definitely were in the version of the film I watched, I'm wondering if that means that originally there was more gore to it, perhaps, because later Rodriguez films certainly went all in on the gore and explosions of blood and very Tarantino-esque. Um, right. And it says the biggest excision came at the end of the film and it contained a large scale shootout at Bucho's mansion. And it would have been Mariachi, Carolina, Bucho and all of the thugs in the background. However, the amount of footage that the MPAA demanded be removed, Rodriguez elected to remove it entirely. There was also two additional scenes that were deleted, which featured the crotch gun in the guitar case. And the gun should have been used by Mariachi during the second bar shootout. And later on, it would have also been used by Carolina, which they obviously made that comment of, oh, you can keep it if you like. And it, it never it never gets mentioned ever again. Yeah. And I, wow, that's a lot to take in. I, I guess I guess the crotch gun he used in uh, Tom Savini, right? In, from Death Till Dawn? Isn't Tom yeah, Savini yeah, yeah. The, the, the crotch gun actually gets used in uh, several different Rodriguez because uh, it also shows up again in Machete and I think Machete Kills. Oh, right. So Viva Gara, I think, I think whips it out. Yeah. And it's, it's the same. It's, it's the same exact gun because I noticed it straight away when she pulled it out. I thought, hang on, is that the same gun from Machete? And it was. And then, like you say, it's also in From Dust Till Dawn. And I, I want to say it's in something else, but I can't remember. It's all we're getting, we're, we're doing this completely out of order, but it's fine. But it just made me chuckle because knowing all of these cuts were made, um, I can't help but wonder, you know, what it would have been like with all of this stuff in yes it probably wouldn't have been able to release but you know there were so many bloody films that came out of this time period but i find it funny that this one is the one that had to make all the cuts but then in retrospect while there are films where the kill count was definitely higher it's like any steven seagal film that came out in the 90s a lot of that was kind of how it's shot today it was clean there wasn't massive amounts of blood. They didn't show you the after effects. And maybe that's why maybe they just, you know, they were like, oh, no, you can kill all these people. We just don't want to see the blood and the gore. And it's like, oh, well, that's the best bit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think. Yeah. So even shot a dude's leg off on Alfred Justice with a shotgun. I'm like, that that's that's OK with you guys. But God forbid someone gets shot in the head. I was like, all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I honestly think that film censor boards in general don't actually have a clue what does and doesn't constitute a violation of their own rules. Um, I think it's just whoever you get on the day doing it just makes it up as they go along. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Out for justice. That's right. I'm just curious. Yeah, like you say, out, out for justice was done years earlier, so maybe they were just unlucky and uh, they were coming out at the time when the censor boards were clamping down on the outrageous or out i say outrageous what they considered outrageous you know levels of violence um because there definitely was a period where they wanted everything to be cleaner and obviously that eventually led into what we have now basically where everything is clean and sanitized yes there's a lot of action but they go to great lengths to hide the impact of shots there's no blood there's very rarely anything that resembles gore it's all just a lot of punching and kicking that never seems to have any lasting consequence so yeah like you say we get it the introduction to bucho and his men and 
then we get him back in the bar for the next big shootout, which is massive by comparison to the one we opened with. Um, So if you want to break us down, feel free, because it sounds like you had a lot more prepared for the action sequences than I do. (laughs) Yeah. uh, So like we get the introduction to the bar, obviously Cheech Marine and Davo are talking with each other. And one thing I liked real quick was like the fact that they're speaking Spanish, but there's no subtitles. It's kind of like, hey, if you know the language, you'll know what they're talking about. It's kind of a funny conversation. They're going over finances. I think there's like some uh, money left over that they're like, you know, should we take it or something like that? I, I think that's what they're talking about. And Cheech is like, well, I need a house payment. Um, so there's like cool, like little bits of like Spanish here and there. It's an English speaking movie, but there's uh, Spanish slang, Spanish conversations that aren't subtitled, which is cool because it's like, yeah, you either get this or you don't. It doesn't matter. Um, and then we see Danny Trejo in town, you know, as uh, Navajos, which means razors in in spanish so it makes sense he has like the throwing knives all right so that's when we get like uh el mariachi coming in the bar and and you know they're they're on their edge because they had just heard buscemi's story about this dude coming in killing everyone at a bar so they're they're inspecting him they're like hey you know what's in the you know what's in the case he's like my guitar you know and there's like this cool like charisma that antonio has and he's kind of just like really cool and and trying to like downplay everything trying to make sure everything goes well so they check the guitar case and they're like, it's a guitar. And they're like, okay. And then Antonio's just like, okay, all right. And then, you know, Cheech is like, you know, we've been hearing about this guy and, and Antonio's still trying to keep it cool. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then it starts to open up and then we see all of his weapons and everyone just like, oh. and then he's like, okay, okay, don't shoot. I love that. That he's like, okay, just, he's trying to calm everything down because he knows it's about to go down. He's not trying to kill these bars. I think, I think Buscemi even tells him like, hey, don't try to shoot up these bars. He's like, hey, they started it. But he's actually trying to like like calm down the situation. But no, they're they're gonna kill him. And uh, Chief Marine yells "matalo," which means kill him. And he's like, "Not yet." And then he has like the sleeve guns, it's so super cool, and starts shooting up everybody. And uh, this whole sequence was uh, previs, basically. You can call it previs before previs was even like a popular thing in American movies. You know, people credit Wachowskis for bringing in Yan Wu Ping and having the the previs there that he shot. Um, but Rodriguez, I think, was one of the first to do it because he brought a camcorder to location. They had about two and a half days to shoot the sequence, I believe. And so they brought Antonio in. They brought in the stunt coordinators and, and the stunt people. And they uh, they planned it out. Rodriguez walked around the bar with some with some shots and was like, hey, you know, this is where I want this, where I want that. Um, whether it be like a setup shot or like or like an action shot, he would just walk around the bar with it and would have Antonio walk uh, walk through some of the choreography um, which was cool to see because you can see that the corner to be like, hey, slow down on this move, slow down on that move. And uh, and so, yeah, it was like a really, really well thought out sequence. Um, again, it's just you see the John Woo style um, in this part where um, I believe the the guy from the back of the bar who was with Tarantino comes out with the Uzi and they're shooting through the bottles on opposite sides, very much like hard boiled face off, hard target, the John Woo style, you know. And uh, a fun fact about that scene, that last henchman that um, Antonio faces off with is the second assistant director. Um, but he did so good in the previs that Rodriguez brought him in. And so they just did that whole thing. And there's a great choreography throughout this whole sequence. You see Antonio on the bar and the camera's following him as he's like going around this like circular bar and he's shooting everyone from behind, from the front. It's it's super ridiculous choreography. Obviously, it's it's hyper-realistic and... and um, and it's super engaging and and um and there's like a, a certain reaction the reactions that the stuntmen take uh the performances from everyone around it just makes the whole thing super um super cinematic 
And obviously we see again, like people flying with wires and, um, I think there, there's a couple moves I, I wanted to point out, but I, I can't for the life of me, can't, can't recall, but yeah, you know, so we get this whole thing and the last henchman comes around and they, they slide on the bar counter and they're about to shoot each other, but they're both out of bullets. Like another John Woo hard boiled reference. So they go down to that and they try to get the, the, the leftover guns. None of them have bullets. Next one that doesn't have bullets. And they, they just keep struggling. And this is very comedic, very funny uh, moment that they had because it was very intense. Like, like Antonio didn't know whether or not he was going to get killed in that moment. So he had to do this whole shootout, very intense. And then they just had, I love how Rodriguez has this little comedic moment for us to take a breather. Like we just saw all these people die. We saw all this bloodshed. Tarantino shot up in the back of the bar. Like, you know, we needed this comedic moment to kind of bring us back down and be like, okay, this is an entertaining movie. You know, the, the movies are cool, but we need to have some like levity. Um, and this is before, you know, people start complaining about Marvel movies doing quips and all that stuff. No, this, like, this is like real, in my opinion, like real levity, just these little gags, you know? And, um, and yeah. And so finally they struggle because the second, the other guy, the henchman finds a gun that's loaded and he tries to struggle to not get shot. And he rips, he's like smacks his head off. And he's like, fuck yeah. And there's like this, the line delivery of Antonio is like, is really, really great. And again, I don't know if it's the charisma and the accent, but he just says things and it just comes off super powerful. So you see the struggle that he's facing throughout the scene. And it just shows like the choreography, coordination, performances are all across the board, like amazing. Yeah, no, I really like that sequence. Um, I agree with you. Banderas has always been able to fire up the intensity whenever he needs it. So yeah, that line delivery spot on throughout the entire sequence. He... He walks the fine line between looking like he's always in control, but actually still struggling to the point that you have some investment. Um, yes, he's the coolest person in the room and he does everything with style, but you can see that he's also kind of like at any moment, a bullet could kill him. And he's very much aware of that. The whole film does annoy me in some aspects, but again, it's not a case of it bothers me, but I can see it bothering people today, which is that they are in the same room as one another. They have nothing obstructing their view. They have automatic weaponry. They're pointing yeah. at him, and yet somehow the bullets are not meeting him. And it does very <laughs> much it does very much remind me of that old Rambo cliche, which is that, you know, a yeah. guy a guy with a fully automatic rifle could be stood point blank in front of Rambo, pull the trigger, and somehow still not hit him. And it does kind of suffer yeah. from that where but the counter to that would be the film isn't trying to be realistic. The film is trying to no. be stylistic. And if you don't see that from the way Banderas moves, from the way the camera moves, from like you say, the fact that the, the thugs, when they get shot, they go spinning and flying into the background. And there isn't a single thing that Banderas does that's trying to go for realism. You know, he fires the guns, throwing his arms back one after the other, which, you know, could be a John Woo reference, could just be him doing his own thing. but one thing i do know for certain is that's not how you would shoot if you'd actually been taught how to shoot but everybody does that you know this this is something else that i noticed because you don't see it much these days but 90 percent of the gang members were firing their guns sideways you know they were doing the old classic of oh i'm gonna hold the gun sideways i'm gonna fire the gun sideways and it's like well i'm not really that surprised that you're not hitting him because you know you're you're kind of making it even worse odds that you're actually going to hit anything but banderas does the same thing he holds one gun straight he holds one gun sideways and 
that was all the rage at the time, you know, not to sound like Grandpa and the Simpsons, but it was the style at the time. There were so many films that did that. And as sad as this is to say, it was also happening in real life, unfortunately, because people were seeing it happen in films. So they wanted to to do that too. And that's one of the reasons why they are so inaccurate. <laughs> I even remember hearing a story that um, in an effort to try and come up with their own thing somewhere in America, a, a gangs decided that it would be cooler to hold the guns completely upside down. And it actually reduced gang violence because they couldn't hit anything. So it actually meant that it kind of solved the problem because they couldn't shoot anything to save their life. So they just kind of stopped after a while. But uh, as for the humor element, I agree with you. Like to say that this film predates Marvel quips is kind of an understatement because uh, nothing had actually really been made. You know, the idea of Marvel being what it is today would have been laughed out the room because Marvel Entertainment. I'm pretty confident that they had not long filed for bankruptcy because they were going under. You know, that's why they were selling off their film rights and they had tons of failed films like The Fantastic Four and Captain America that had never made it off the ground. Blade was still far away, so you know, no one had seen Wesley Snipes do anything like this yet. But at the same time, levity for me, I completely agree, but I can definitely see how some people today would not necessarily agree. Um, I think this would get categorized more along the lines of black humor or dark humor, simply because the thing it's joking about is somebody dying. And I, I can I can see a certain type of person watching this and being like, how can you find this funny? It's someone's life. This isn't funny. This is serious. And I don't think this is the film for them, but I know that they're out there. And 90 percent of the time, they're the type of person that will be given the job of reviewing this film. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it would get whether or not you find this funny, I think comes down to you. But I do and you do. So that's all that matters. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and when I bring up like the Marvel humor, I guess I'm more so contrasting the two because in this one, there's quips, but there's a sense of danger that he that he could very well get shot. Whereas in movies today, there are quips, but you know that the heroes are going to win in the end. You know that. Is going to end well for them. I think in this movie, there's a sense of danger where he, like, like you said, he's kind of in control, but he could very well like uh, miss someone and, and end up dead. And so I always, I always like that this movie, although had some humor, like dark humor, there, there's a sense of danger to that though, where it's almost like, well, you know. So that's kind of where I was kind of come from. Oh yeah, no, no, I, I, I agree. Um, I think a lot of people have a problem with the MCU films, but I don't think a lot of those people have seen films before the MCU was a thing. There's that too. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I think if you were to watch, I, I struggle when people say that, oh, well, one, one line quips are Marvel. It's, it's lazy. And oh, any film that does that is copying Marvel. And I'm like, I'm curious, have you ever seen a film made in the eighties? <laughs> Because if you think that, the, that the MCU invented one-line quips, then I don't think you've right. ever seen an Arnold Schwarzenegger film. Um, that's true. I would call him yeah. the king of the one-liners, but that's just me. I don't know, maybe. But I know a lot of people really don't watch films that are older than them. And that, that is what it boils down to. I, I've spoken about this before on this show. I have friends that were like that and kind of still are, but they do watch stuff if I show it to them and they mm. always enjoy it. But it's so weird to think that they're the same age as me, but they've never watched these things. 
And younger people, especially, they've never seen a lot of this stuff because, oh, it's it's from the 80s. It's from the 70s. And this one obviously annoys me. It's from the 90s. It's old. Why would I watch it? And it's like, it's not as simple as that, guys. That's like saying that, oh, it's black and white. That must mean it's bad. Oh, it's subtitled. That must mean it's bad. We don't think that way anymore, though there was a period of time where I think people did think like that. But people have grown since then. And I don't understand why this is like a repeating cycle where, oh, it's old, therefore it's bad. No, it's not. <laughs> well, if, if, I, if I could piggyback off your art, uh, off of the rant at Star Wars fans who are going off on the Book of Boba Fett and just that character doing a little turnaround, ah. doing like a little 360 and shooting the gun. It's like, really? It's like, do you not know who's in control of these shows? Do you not know who's behind it? And like, uh, honestly, I, I can say with full confidence that most of these fans probably have not seen Desperado. Uh, most of these fans are probably kids my age who are just like, oh, that's so cringe. It's like, I was like, you guys got to do research on who's in these shows because I mean, you have a full, a full fledged legend taking up like the action scenes in this. And, um, I, I think people need to go out of their wheelhouse sometimes and look into other, um, areas of film or TV and, and really get a good grasp on like, the history of it all. Cause if you had known the Robert Rodriguez style, then you would not be surprised by what you see in Book of Boba Fett to some degree, although his style is a little watered down. I mean, but that right there is like, that's totally Rodriguez. And uh, and that just really that really irked me that day when I saw some dude from Screen Rant like calling it cringe action. It's like cringe action. Are you kidding me? Like we be any of us would be lucky to have even half the style that Rodriguez has or craftsmanship. You know. You, well, to be fair, you've kind of just um, made my argument that I've I've been on. I've said this in another episode, but it it's, <laughs> it's fine because that basically I was talking about the fact that. My friend struggles to watch anything that has cringe. And I never even really understood this word until he kind of did this. It's the same thing. I can guarantee you that depending on the age of the person that wrote that article, because I, I don't know, but I bet you any money that even if they have seen Desperado, well, it doesn't matter because it was in the 90s. Everything in the 90s is cringe. It's old. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it's cringe. End of debate. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't matter what Robert Rodriguez has or hasn't achieved. That's all old stuff. What's he doing now? That's all that anybody seems to care about. And unfortunately, I've seen the other side. Like, like you were saying, oh, it's probably mostly just kids. No, most of the people that I saw complaining about it were dudes older than me that were kids when Star Wars, you know, A New Hope, even though it wasn't called that, it was just called Star Wars. When that came out, they were the ones that saw that in the cinema. And now they, they're watching the book of Boba Fett and they already hated it because of the, the colorful motorbikes, the, 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 oh boy. the slow build up, the, and they had already had problems. And I think the spin was just what they grasped onto to sort of go WTF. And to a degree, I was kind of with them in the moment, but at the same time, it's like, I knew it was Rodriguez. I understood that that was a reference to his older work. And I have other problems with the book of Boba Fett that have nothing to do with Rodriguez. I mean, he directed the episode in The Mandalorian where Boba Fett got his armor back. And that's one of my favorite episodes because it's so savage. My issues are the fact that the freaking show wasn't like that. I didn't, I didn't need all the rest of the stuff that happened in the show. But he also brought in Danny Trejo. So, you know, that was cool. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to go off topic. too 
not out of field, I guess, on this idea. Some Star Wars fans are not known to be the most progressive. Uh, so <laughs> I always think like, so I always think like, dude, if you have a problem with Rodriguez, like of all dudes, why don't you have a problem with some of the decisions that were made in these other shows and, and other parts of Star Wars? Like you guys are so hell bent on, on like bashing Rodriguez. Like why him? You know, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to go down that road, but after seeing what they did to like Rose Tico and all that stuff, I was like, eh, I think I know where you guys are coming from here. And you guys like either don't, I think it's, it's either subconscious or it is conscious. I, I always come a little cynical to those guys. So, yeah, I, I know what you mean. I'm quite on record of having said I am of the, the, the kingdom of the not enjoying the last Jedi group, but not to the same degree as like the people you're referencing. It's, it's one of those things where it's like, I don't ever get that bothered about moving pictures to care. I, I have my issues with new Star Wars in general, though I love The Mandalorian and I, I liked Book of Boba Fett overall, but I was not a fan of The Last Jedi or Rise of Skywalker, but I liked Rogue One and I liked Solo, which, you know, I think me and one other person in the cinema saw. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's one of those things, like, you're not going to like everything. I like The Clone Wars, I like Rebels, didn't even touch Resistance, um, and I like The Bad Batch, even though, you know, some of it, again, it, it it's... I think the biggest problem with Star Wars, and again, this is completely off topic, is the people watching it, myself included, are not the target audience. And the biggest problem that all of these big brands have, it's not just Star Wars, it's anything that's been going for a really long time, is you cannot please everyone, but they keep trying to, and then can't seem to understand why they're not having success. And I say success loosely because a lot of people would just say, oh, well, they made lots of money. It's like, well, did, did they? Because mm-hmm. Solo lost money. Rise of Skywalker mm-hmm. did no, nowhere near as well as other films. And you can apply that to so many big franchises that have kind of just given up or keep on going, even though they're not actually making money. Like uh, so many franchises mm-hmm. at the moment, whether they're on TV or whether they're films, are just going because they kind of have to, but they're not actually doing anything to make tons of money. They're not at the forefront of people's minds. And I think one of the biggest issues is they don't know what it is that they're trying to make. They're not doing, to, to bring us back on point, Desperado understands what it is and it understands what it wants to be. I think a lot of films yeah. these days, they're made by a marketing team in a big office yes. with about 20 people in suits going, we want more money. How do we get it? And it's not, I have an idea for a fantastic film or I have an idea for a film I really want to make. How can I make it? You know, Rodriguez wanted to make a film about El Mariachi. He made it. It was successful. So then he made Desperado and he got a big budget film instead of a, a film that he, you know, shot in his garage for want of a better argument. And so many old school actors had that experience and these days because it is either you star in straight to dvd or straight to streaming or you star in a multi-million dollar film there is nothing in between and there's very little else or you star on youtube which can work as we were discussing you know before we started recording but it's one of those weird things where i actually think for all of the progress that has been made in cinema in general, for all of the great access that technology has given people, it's actually limited how you can progress. And 
when you've got people like Eric Jacobus who was making his own films and he was making his own direct DVD films, and now he does mocap because trying to make your own film in this day and age is just not worth the effort. When you've got people like Scott Adkins who is making these films in like 20 days because that's all budgets of several million can get you, that's ridiculous, you know? <laughs> and it shouldn't be that way, but it is. It, it's, it's drowning out all of the independent voices, all of the new filmmakers, and anybody that doesn't want to basically make like, the big studio tentpole is screwed. And I'm very much aware that I went on a rant not too long ago saying that, you know, these films aren't failing because of the big budget temples. They're not. They're failing because they can't actually make the films they want to make, but also audiences are interested in them. So where do you go from there? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. I hope you keep that bit in because that's 100% true. Like everything you said about... Um, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to keep it all in now. That, that was fine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I hate talking about The Last Jedi because it can very easily just go off the rails. And it's like going Zack yeah. Snyder. It's like, they will come. Oh, my God. <laughs> they will. Yeah, haters, lovers, all coming in. And, and it's battleground. Yep. But yeah, carry on, sorry. Oh, yeah. I guess, uh, I guess after the shootout, you know, he, he's out of the bar. He's like, he's already war torn. Like he's, he's not walking out of there like an action star, uh, like, like, like walking away from it all uncut. No, this dude is like tired. He's exhausted. That's when we're introduced to, uh, Catalina played by Sama Hayek. Uh, I love that the first shot we see her and she's walking out of her bookstore and a car crash happens because it can't keep her eyes off her. Yeah. That's a great way to set up. That's a great way to set up like how beautiful your character is. Uh, what people think of her in the community like it's like i love that it's a good setup and she's just walking like it's a normal day even though a car crash has happened um and we see tavo coming from the back oh go ahead, go ahead i also like the fact that after the car crash happened she turns around with this knowing smirk that she knows damn well <laughs> she's the reason that the car crash happened yeah. and she just smiles and walks on like yeah that happens most days yeah, you know a, she's a confident very confident character she knows like that she's beautiful and all that stuff. i love that that they write her that way where she's confident and isn't isn't ditzy isn't really dumb she knows exactly what's going on and we see that later on in the movie that that she can take care of herself and i love the way that that, that yeah. Rodriguez wrote her yeah um the other thing as well sorry um i before before we went completely off topic he was saying that banderas comes out looking he's covered in sweat he's you know his um adrenaline is pumping he doesn't look cool and suave he looks like he's been in a gunfight yeah. the other thing that i forgot to mention that i liked is he does something that almost no action hero does in the 80s or 90s which is that he reloads his guns yeah yeah you're all, right all throughout all throughout the bar fight, he fires a consistent amount and then he puts in a new magazine and reloads. And he does that several times in that shootout, but he also does it consistently throughout the film. Don't ask me where he gets the ammo from, but he does at least reload, which is more than pretty much 90% of every action film made of that decade ever did. I love, I love that too. It adds, it adds the, to the uh, intensity of the scene, the, the danger of the scene, because there's a dude on the other side of the bar shooting with the Uzi at the counter where he's like trying to reload and shit. And then he's like up there like, you missed me. And then he keeps like having to reload and stuff. Like as it, it, it adds like style again, it's just style. You know, John Woo doesn't, he does the action similar. Uh, Rodriguez does the action similar to Woo, but Woo doesn't have this like humor to it sometimes. 
And that's where Rodriguez comes in. He's like, well, let's change it up a bit. Like he has to reload. He might die in a second, but he's over here throwing quips. Like it's very, he makes it his own and it's really cool. But it, it, it also helps to what we were saying right at the beginning, which is that it, it's one of those fake things you can do to make the audience think, oh, this guy's like me. Like, you know, when you see Schwarzenegger come in with a machine gun that most people can't even lift, never mind fire, and he just fires it for like 20 minutes straight, never reloads, it very much feels like a superhero. But when you go Antonio Banderas goes into a bar of all places, has a couple of pistols, fires five or six shots, and then reloads. It's like, oh yeah, that's pretty realistic. Like, I could maybe do this. It, you can't. It's it's tricking you. It's not realistic in any way, shape, or form, but it helps trick your brain into going, oh, he's, you know, he's struggling for breath. Oh, he's covered in sweat. Oh, he actually reloads his gun. Yeah, I like this guy. This feels different. This feels fresh. It's not, but it kind of gives you that illusion, even today, because even today, the way this is shot, you don't see a hundred other films copying this style, especially yeah, yeah, not now. I love it. Um, I, I think it's great that like movies can show you characters that you want to be, or maybe characters you can be. It, it's it's a great mix of the two, I think. Yeah. Um, and like you say, um, Salma's introduction is great. Uh, and then he then realizes that there's someone tailing him. And it's funny because someone's tailing him but Danny Trejo's character is behind him yeah. and you have this sort of chain of people looking at each other. I love it. And um, I, I love that moment. And then like you say, uh, Banderas gets shot, but kills the other guy in the process and right. he saves uh, Salma's character, Carolina. Yep. And then that's how they end up not meeting, but they kind of get forced together because she's like, Oh, he saved my life. So I should probably return the favor. Right. And, that made me chuckle so much what what happens next because he wakes up in her bookstore and she is essentially trying to remove the bullet that's lodged in his arm now i was with that scene up until they went oh yeah she doesn't actually know what she's doing she's just <laughs> reading a medical book now fun fact i don't know if you know this cuz i think i've said this but again i don't know if it's if it's if it's one that's out there but up until recently i worked in surgeries <laughs> Oh my. In a hospital. Yeah. So watching that sequence was kind of like, no. <laughs> if, <laughs> if someone could read a book and then perform that level of surgery, given how deep that bullet was embedded yeah. and not kill him, we would not send people to like nine, ten years of medical school. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, I love hearing people who are in a certain field see it play out in the movie and be like oh hell no like that's not how it works man i love that because mike scott does the same thing right with like the law he's a lawyer so whenever he watches like he can't watch yes. a lot of those shows same thing for you i'm sure like you see certain hospital scenes you're like oh come on oh dude every hospital scene like there's <laughs> there's maybe two or three films i mean my partner's even worse because she's a midwife uh -huh. and uh just to clarify um midwife is different between uk and us so in oh. the uk midwives I realized this last time I've said this to a couple of people. So my understanding is midwives in America, they're not the authority when it comes to childbirth. They're not the authority when it comes to children. They're kind of like an alternative to doctors. Whereas in the UK, midwives are basically the, they run childbirth. They run pregnancy. They are just as qualified. They have the same level of degree. In fact, in some 
places, they're higher than nurses. And depending on the level of midwife, they can overrule doctors if, you know, it depends on the situation. But she's been, you know, years studying to get her degree as a midwife. That's a nationally recognized thing, like being a nurse, like being an operational department practitioner. So whenever she sees stuff with childbirth involved, she just like tears it to shreds because it's never realistic. And it's so frustrating watching some programs because like um, we watched Downton Abbey and there's a sequence where this one character is having problems with giving birth and she knew an episode in advance what her issue was and what she was going to unfortunately die from. And she was like, she has all the classic signs, but they didn't know about it back at the time. So the doctor who's overruling the the people that should be making the decision she's like no she's just killed her she's she, he's just made all of the wrong decisions and i was like okay um for those of us that you know want to enjoy it <laughs> but i i get it it's the same like you said if you have knowledge in a certain field it's very hard to watch fictionalized versions of it where you know 90 percent of what you're seeing isn't true it's the same as you know martial artists watching martial art films it's yeah. like yeah it's cool but we all know it's it's not ever gonna happen yeah um, i used to work in it so whenever i see it stuff especially hacking um, yeah. or someone <laughs> is just mash mashing a keyboard and hitting the same keys over and over again it's like you know you need to hit space and enter for anything to happen right yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah interesting how you forget the martial arts thing too because some people can be really up their own ass about that stuff but then a lot of us are like well no i want to do that like that's actually cool to see um whereas you guys are like my, um, yeah. no no i was just gonna say like my favorite martial artist was uh benny the jet arquides because when he was interviewed once and he said that you know when you watch a jackie chan film and he does three somersault flips grabs a gun and fires you know, everybody's like, oh, that wasn't realistic. And it's like, yeah, he knows it wasn't realistic, but you want to know what it was? Entertaining. And like, that's the point of making a film. It's, right. it's not to be realistic, because if it was realistic, it would right. be boring. <laughs> um, and the cool thing about like Carolina helping out with the medical stuff, it's clearly not perfect. Like the stitches are horrible. And like, she's, oh, yeah. she's basically hurting Antonio too, as she's like helping him. He's like drinking hot water. And he's like spitting it out, and she's like, "Oh, sorry, like that was hot water." And like, I, I, you know, although she's learning stuff on the fly, which is unrealistic, at least like he's not having the best time with his surgery. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where it's like I can forgive it because it's it's normal. Like you see that stuff all the time. But yeah, in the back of your in the back of my mind, I'm going like, there are so many things that could have gone wrong with that and so many ways that she could have basically messed up his arm it could have been infected he could have had sepsis it's like it doesn't matter it's a film at the end of the day i don't overthink it i just found it funny like often when people have to remove the bullet it's usually like right there so they can just put in tweezers and pull it out right but she was proper like rooting around in there and i was just <laughs> thinking you do understand that that if you're Oh, I'm going on a real rant here. Okay, so when you close somebody, when when you close somebody up, as she was doing, all she did was no. close up the skin. Now that can work, but given how deep she went, there are multiple layers of flesh that you have to close up. And, and to be honest, given how far she put it in, she probably went into the muscle tissue, which again is irrelevant. But if she oh, did, cool. if, she, if, she, if she didn't close up all the layers that she'd opened, 
the chances of that wound staying closed when he did anything else in the film is like zero and that wound like he jumps off of tables he does backflips he crashes into walls and none of his wounds because he gets more obviously later ever reopen and you just think they make a point of saying how bad her stitching is and yet that stitching is probably better than anything you've got in the hospital because the first thing they would tell you is for the next six weeks don't do anything because you will rip the stitches out <laughs> oh my god I love hearing about that. The that the fact that she dug in so deep that there's layers to it. I, I would have never thought that. Um so that's yeah. really cool. That's really cool. Uh, again, so on the off chance that somebody else listening to this has those experiences, it's not every surgeon will do that. Some surgeons do just choose to just sew the skin back together. The body will eventually heal it. It's not that what she did couldn't happen. It's just that if she had done it that way, he wouldn't have then gone immediately back into let's pick up a gun and start doing backflips, you know? <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, I don't know if you noticed that like, there was like a, oh, sorry, this is like kind of like not off topic, but going back to like the other scene. I love how Rodriguez had like a cool shot of Tavo with the two guns. It, it was homaging the Godfather when they were going to shoot uh, Marlon Brando in the little oh, marketplace. I, I didn't make that connection, but now that you've said it, um, I can. My only thought in that sequence was how close does he want to get to him before he finally pulls oh, the trigger? Right. <laughs> he could have he could have killed him at any point, but he was like, no, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get right up next to him and give him plenty of time to know I'm here. <laughs> Action movie logic, don't you love it? Yeah. Well, I, I when I first watched it, I I thought uh Trejo's character was gonna kill him. Because in the beginning, you don't know why he's there. So it's like, is he like helping him? Because he could have killed Banderas' character there and then the same way as that guy could have. But he doesn't. He just kind of yeah. watches. Um, yeah. But yeah, so Carolina and uh, Mariachi essentially have this weird conversation of trying to get to know each other. I can't quite remember the exact chain of events. But yeah, you get a lot of uh, funny dialogue there. And I, I really enjoyed their sequences. Yeah. Did you notice real quick when she put the cigar on his wound, there's like a lightsaber sound effect? I didn't notice that, no. It's 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 like uh it's like when it hits him like like there's a little I think he used a lightsaber sound effect, I swear, when it touched the wound. And I, I, I always thought like, oh that's kind of funny because he went on to do a Star Wars project that he had this little sound effect and I, I I've known about it since I was a kid. I've always wondered, like, is that a real like lightsaber thing, or is like, is that just coincidence? That it just sounds the exact same um, as when it strikes. I think it's probably coincidence because obviously it was supposed to be the sound of the hot searing the flesh back together. So I don't know yeah. if if that is just a similar sound effect because obviously the two lightsabers clashing, they would it, it they're superheated, so I suppose it would make yeah. a similar hissing sound, but. Maybe it is the same sound effect. It wouldn't surprise me. Um, yeah. You know, films reuse sounds all the time. Yeah. And that's why I brought up the Godfather shot because he's full of homages. So I always think like this dude's throwing Easter eggs left and right. So I'm like, eh, is it? Yeah. So I, my brain is blanking as to what scene comes next, which is unusual. I think, I think, uh, I think Trejo's still going around town. I think he shows up at the bar. And the guy's like, hey, like, beat it. And he's just, like, checking out, like, the scene, the carnage, and just walks out of the bar. And then we go back to the bookstore. And that's when, like, uh, I believe she finds out who El Mariachi is. She looks in the guitar case. She finds the guns. That's right. And, uh, yeah. 
Yeah. See, because yeah. no, no, hmm. I remembered that bit. It was the it was the, it was the fact that um, Bucho goes to the bar that I forgot because um, yeah. he goes on a bit of a rampage at his men, understandably, because he's like WTF, <laughs> and he's like, "Oh, we're being very closely watched," and he starts having like a mini breakdown almost. Right. Yeah. He, um, the actor who plays him, Joaquin de Almeidas, I think he's a That's, good scumbag. Cause- that He's is him. I'm, I'm glad you said that because, yeah, I, um, I always struggle with the, the Joaquin bit because I see a J. <laughs> <laughs> I know. For, for the longest time, too, as a kid, I was up like, Jao Quinn, and they're like, no, Aaron, it's, it's Joaquin. I'm like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> and so I struggle. Um, but yeah, he's a good scumbag. He shows up in Fast Five, I think, too, as another scumbag. Yes. And he's always a villain. I like that. Yeah, he's, he's in a lot of films as a villain. That's what I mean. Like, Joaquim and Carlos between them, it was like they really had their bad guys on lock. And then obviously yeah. throw in Danny Trejo as well. And it was like, we have the Holy Trinity yeah. here, guys. Yeah. Yeah. I like how Trejo showed up in two classics that year, Heat and Desperado, both with very little lines. Um, well, he has no lines, lines in this film, does he? Yeah. No, yeah he's, he's just standing there being Danny Trejo. And that's, and that's all I could ask for from him, honestly. It is funny though, because I'm so used to seeing uh, Danny look how he does now that seeing him back in the 90s was kind of like a whoa moment because, you know, Banderas, he, when he dyes his hair, he really doesn't look that different. But seeing Danny back in his younger form, I was like, oh yeah, this is why he used to be absolutely terrifying. I'd forgotten (laughs) just how much of a presence he has like no dialogue needed. <laughs> no, he, that dude dominates. Um, he's not a good looking dude. He's an ugly looking fool. So he's able to like just pull out that like menacing look. Um, so I, that, that's why I love when they put him in movies, man. He's always just like intimidating as hell. But yeah, um, I'm right in thinking that uh, we then get Steve Buscemi's last scene in the film, which is that. Yeah. Banderas goes to the church because he thinks his stuff is safe with Carolina. And yeah. they have this uh, moment where Bajemi basically, and I should also stress that the, that's the name of the character. Um, Bajemi is playing Bajemi. So it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Uh, he, I, I almost think, I, I almost think this is like his life after Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. <laughs> wow. It's his very short life after Reservoir Dogs then. Yeah. <laughs> they have a bit of an argument in the church where, Steve's is essentially like, nah, man, you're too violent. And I now know who Bucho is and it's not worth it. So I'm out, which doesn't go down very well. We get a really funny one liner from Banderas when uh, a priest asks him if he'd like a confession. And he's like, nah, there's no point because where I'm going, I just have to come back again, which did make me chuckle. I love that. I love that line. I was going to bring that up too. I love that they're in a Catholic church. Uh, I don't want to keep going down as well, but because it's special to me, I mean, Mexican culture, you know, it's all about Catholicism. Like, you know, a lot of Mexicans are Catholic. We grew up around Catholic churches and to like have this cool little moment where he's in a Catholic church and he's not exactly confessing, but when he goes out, he has this clip with the, uh, with the priest. I think it's hilarious. I love it. No, I, I love it too. Like you say, that to me is how you do the sort of levity in between all the chaos. Um, I, I really like moments like that. And, I think it's realistic that a character who's that stained in blood would need to let out his uh, irritations through comedy, for want of a better way of putting it, because the alternative is he'd just combust at some point. But I think that's one of the reasons why he's so 
upset that Buscemi is going to leave him because he even says later in the film, like he's the closest thing he has to a brother, which will come up again later. I think Buscemi for him was, you know, how he dealt with a lot of the issues and how he dealt with a lot of what he was doing because by his own uh, admission, although he's very good at it and he's trained himself to be very good at it, he's, he just wants to be, you know, deep down, he's just a musician who got put in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And unfortunately, Buscemi's character then gets killed by uh, Danny Trejo, who decides to come out and actually start interacting with them. But at the same time, <laughs> unbeknownst to them, Carlos Gomez, and again, he doesn't get a name. Um, he's literally credited as right hand. So we'll just continue to call him Gomez. Uh, Gomez, he, yeah. <laughs> he, he then shows up uh, in an armored car because he's been sent by Bucho to also kill Mariachi, but they don't actually know what Mariachi looks like. And nobody actually knows that Danny Trejo's character is there. That kind of gets told to Bucho after he's told his men to go and kill the strange Mexican man that's come to town. And and he can't find the number to his car either. He's like, where's the number to my car? And no one knows. <laughs> that, that scene makes me chuckle because that scene would just confuse everybody of the modern generation to no end because i thought then so much of this film doesn't happen in a world with mobile phones in a world with smartphones especially because um the the script literally wouldn't work if you had a world where we all had smartphones so yeah that did make me chuckle it's like yeah that that does show the film's uh, age but i love it because that's the world i grew up in these things didn't exist Yeah, you think about that. Today, that movie would not work at all. It would be solved very quickly. It would either be solved very quickly or it would end very badly very quickly because um, he right. he wouldn't be able to walk through the town mysteriously because the first the oh. first time he shot up a bar, he'd be on social media. He'd be he'd, there. Would yeah, be, there'd be a recording of <laughs> there'd be yeah. photos of him. There'd be videos of him. Everyone would know what he'd look like. And the second he showed up at the next bar, someone would call and everybody would be there within minutes because they'd all, you know, they'd all be in constant contact. Um, it's actually funny how many old films, and I use the word old loosely because they don't even have to be that old, that they don't work the second you introduce the concept of a mobile phone because so many stories are built around the idea of a town being isolated or people not being able to communicate. And in this day and age, that's a foreign concept. You can always communicate. You know, there's always a way to talk to someone. Um, uh, but anyway, the, they then um, they have this comical, comical scene, sequence of events where you can see what's going to happen, and it still happens anyway. They arrive in the armored car, and Danny Trejo ends up attacking them, and they end up attacking him, thinking that he's the mariachi. Whilst all that is happening... Uh, Bucho is having a telephone conversation with his associates who sent Danny Trejo and are describing what he looks like so that they don't accidentally kill him. And whilst that's happening, they then kill him. <laughs> Which I thought was hysterical. I love that too. Yeah, they bring him back, right? And they have him on the ground. He's like, he has a tattoo on his chest of a woman with throwing knives. And he's like dangling the throwing knife. And he's like, yeah, we'll, we'll make sure we don't get out of his way. And they, and there he is on the floor dead. Yep. I love that. It. <laughs> it's also, um, 
they basically save El Mariachi and don't even know it because he was screwed. Um, Trejo had filled, filled him full of uh, his throwing knives and he was stuck in an alley pinned down. If they hadn't shown up and mistaken him, he'd have probably never made it out of the alley, which just made it even funnier. Like you say, the dark humor is there if you know what you're looking for, or you can take it super seriously and it's, you know, a very dark film. How how funny or dark do you want this film to be? I think depends on you. <laughs> yeah, and I I don't even think it's a, it's a battle between like having a soft like 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 you're soft if you don't think it's funny. I think it's more like media literacy, you know, um, like like you understanding like like the way it's presented is not supposed to be glorifying it per se. It's 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 very like you said dark humor, you know. As long as you can read into that, it's very you know you can see where they're going with it. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Um, we also get another. Well, this bit is supposed to be dark because he manages to bandage himself up, sort of, um, and he sees this kid which he'd seen previously, and he tried to teach him the guitar. Yeah. Didn't wasn't that much of an important moment to talk about, but now he sees him again, and he's like, "Why aren't you practicing?" And uh, yeah. to cut a long story short, he then discovers that this kid is actually like running drugs for the cartel that he's obviously trying yeah. to fight against. And that leads to yeah. the revelation of the kid basically turning around and being like, yeah, everybody in this town works for the cartel, even Carolina, the woman you're staying with. And it's like, A, that means his location isn't as secure as he thought it was. And B, he then gets very angry because he thought that she was, you know, just a random innocent bystander. And it turns out that everybody pretty much in the town knows who he's talking about and who he's going after. And that totally changes his perspective. And they then, he then returns to the bookstore and has an argument with her whilst at the same time nearly passing out from the blood loss, which again leads to yet more hilarious surgery. <laughs> yeah, hilarious surgery. And uh, yeah, I do like how, I think the kid's name in the movie is Nino, which means little boy in, in, in Spanish. And um, just, just to like, I, I, yeah, we forgot that first moment they had together, which yeah, it might not be that important, but it's a good character moment because you saw how he, he couldn't play the guitar because of his hand injury yeah and, it, and like, like you said he's he's his character is just a guy at the wrong place at the wrong time he loves doing music but it, but now he's on a quest for revenge and he's got to leave the music behind I, I do like i do just want to go back on that and just just mention just mention it that's yeah. fine you just did <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so so we get uh carolina and and el mariachi having a, a having an argument conversation she tells him what everything that's been going on that like yeah bucho gives her money and that's how she has the bookstore he's asking how much he pays and all that stuff and um and then next thing you know he's on the table but then bucho arrives so she's got to like go down the cash register as he's as he's falling across the bar or across the counter that way like you know the noise is like reduced or whatever and it comes in there's like this tense moment and um you know, Antonio can hear Bucho talking to Carolina and having their conversation. He's trying so hard to not make any noise about how he's reloading. Yeah. And he also has some very uncomfortable moments in the film because it becomes very obvious that uh, Bucho is attracted to Carolina. And maybe at one point she reciprocated that because he is clearly used to getting very personal with her. And he's very confused that she doesn't reciprocate this time, even though he does try to force it anyway. Um, which again, is kind of a creepy moment in the film. But later on, she makes a point of defending him and saying, oh, you know, you only know the bad side of him. He has a good side and he has a caring side. And it's like, oh, okay, 
So they kind of infer that she might have at one point not just done it purely for the money. She liked the attention. And I imagine she also quite enjoyed the fact that being liked by the person that runs the town probably had its perks as well. But yeah, he he comes across very weird in that sequence, which I think was by design. It's not like it doesn't feels out of place. It's very much like she doesn't want the attention at the moment, but she's also trying to not make it obvious that somebody else currently has her attention either. And yeah, I think they she does a great job of playing that, which like you say, considering that both Joaquin and Antonio have done quite a lot of other stuff. And I think it's said in a few interviews with Salma that like this for her was her first big role and there was quite a lot demanded of her. I mean, we'll get to it in a minute, but a lot of the the stuff uh, involved her being very feminine and some of that was quite uncomfortable to film. And you know, she said it was a really good experience and Robert and Antonio and Rakim, everybody was great. But at the end of the day, it still has to actually happen in order for you to film it. So I think she did a great job personally. Like her character is so believable and nothing takes you out of that moment. Yeah, yeah. Because um, we were talking about this earlier, how, how she's not a dumb character. Like she embraces the femininity, but some uh, some writers will will take the femininity and, and mistake it for dumb for dumbness or for lack of intelligence where no, no, she's, she's feminine, but she can take care of herself. And, and she has, you know, the, the ability to, to go head to head with Antonio and with Joaquin and stuff. And, and that, that's just a credit to, to good writing. Yeah. It's cutting a little bit ahead here. Cause I'm aware of how much time we've been uh, talking about this, but um, the two end up in bed together and they're playing music and they're trying to have a nice moment. And then that inevitably leads to an, a sex sequence. And the only reason that we're bringing it up is because in this day and age, you don't get these anymore. And it kind of surprised me just how not um, graphic it was, that's the wrong word, but it's kind of fits the film perfectly. But at the same time, uh, it it doesn't shy away from the realities of the situation. Like, these two people are in a very high pressure situation and it's not really that unreasonable to think that they would like each other. I mean, they're both very attractive. I mean, I defy anybody to look at Salma Hayek and say that she isn't, <laughs> especially in 1995. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and just to like go straight ahead to like Bucho's, you know, sex scene, there's like a oh, yeah. moment. Where and it, it's a good contrast as yeah. to like the intimacy between Salma and Antonio and how he does not give a, a shit about this woman and it's and it's a good like like uh, you know villain moment almost you know question that the person that Bucho is having sex with was that just some random person or was that his female uh, henchman I want to say it was the henchman yeah because I, I think was so. I was kind of unclear on that because. All throughout the film, they kind of have this weird, like, flirtatious vibe. But when, when they actually do have a sex sequence, I'm pretty confident it is her. But it was really difficult because they don't linger on it for any length of time for you to figure it out. But I'm pretty confident it was her. Because like you say, I think he in that moment was mulling over the fact that he didn't think that it was her. You know, uh, sorry, he he was like, she wasn't acting right. She wasn't doing this right um so he was like blowing off steam to, for want of a better phrase but he was also in his head 
like not there at all. You know, like you said, there was no intimacy. There was no connection because he was still thinking about uh, Carolina. Whereas in their sequence, it was 100% all about them. And it also kind of serves a purpose because whilst all of that's going on, his brain hasn't stopped working. And by the end of both of these sequences, he's like, nah, she's lying. He's there. Send everybody to go kill him. And it's kind of like it shows you how ruthless he is. Like all of that, nah, his brain never stopped thinking about it. And he's like, nah, fuck it, kill him. You know, it's like, I just love the way he does yes. that. It's like he has a cigarette and he's thinking about it. He has his big cigar and then he's like, nah, kill him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's, a, it's a good it's a good moment for like him as a character, I guess. And, and then we go to um, the morning after she's, uh, Samaha is actually singing. And uh, intercut between the, the goons coming up the stairs, ready, ready to blast off and and uh you can hear antonio like hearing the footsteps and there's a cool like first person shot with both guns and he's like approaching approaching until he gets to salma and it's really good filmmaking um you know first person shots are not weren't the norm back then you know it was way before hardcore henry way before you know first person shooters so it's very you know you gotta uh, you know give credit to the creativity of of uh storytelling through action and, and i love that he's able like their storytelling through action so yeah, no, I really like that sequence too. I mean, I like Salma singing. I like the fact that both of the lead characters, you know, it's actually them singing when they do sing in the film. Yeah. And I thought it was a great way to build up the tension as well. You say, I, 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 the one thing I will say though, it really was kind of obvious that Salma was struggling to keep her eyes shut because, you know, there's all this stuff happening around her and it's like she never opens her eyes yeah. once. And you, you can kind of see it on her face. Like she knows stuff is happening and she's like, yeah, uh, just gotta, just gotta pretend like it's not happening. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah. And then that leads to another big action scene. Yep. Another great action scene, another great shootout. Um, She ends up shooting one of the goons uh, when they're trying to go back up the stairs after they find out the bookstore is burning. Some movies back then, like even hard target does this where, uh, a woman character uh, shoots someone and is like freaked out, and they're like, and they're like, oh my god. Whereas in this movie, she shoots him because she's pissed. Like her bookstore is burning, and she's like, we need to get the hell out of here, and I'm pissed. So she shoots the guy, doesn't have a moment. She just shoots him, and then just go up the stairs. I love that. Yeah, no, I I made the observation as well, where she doesn't have any of the typical freak out moments. She doesn't need time to adjust. It's just. This is happening. She gets angry. Then she realizes the severity of the situation and just takes a sawn off shotgun from Banderas and starts joining in. Uh, There's no period where she's like, I don't know how to use a gun. She's just like, there we go, dead. Um, And the other thing that made me chuckle as well is they're in such a hurry to get out of the room that she picks up a red heel instead of a black heel. So she spends the rest of the film with mismatched heels because she's in that black... uh, when when they when they first showed it, it genuinely does look like she's in like a school girl's outfit, and I was like, yeah. okay, but yeah, she's just in this weird like black outfit, but she's got this one red heel, and you just chuckle because, like you say, they leave the room so quickly because there's yeah. gunmen coming after them, and Banderas manages to get all of his stuff, but Salma only had time to get a pair of mismatched heels, and it just makes you chuckle. Right, she's wearing his jacket, I think, right. 
as part of the yeah yeah okay um i, I do love the costume design in this movie by the way like like uh they call them charros the the mariachi outfits and the way they put the scorpion on the back of uh, Antonio's is like super cool. I love, I love like the whole design of it. Yeah, no, I, I like his look in this film. I like the fact that when he's trying to be like suave, he puts his head in the ponytail. But when he's, you know, going for the more rough and killer look, he lets it go loose. And the scorpion on his jacket fits the picture with all of the guns. It, it just works perfectly. We also get Salma and Banderas both do jumps across the rooftops. But that leads into uh, another lovely action movie trope, which is a big, huge explosion from a couple of grenades in this instance, but a big explosion nonetheless. And neither one of the lead characters reacts to it. They just slowly walk away from it, almost in slow motion, but not quite. And it just made me smile because I thought, yeah, we, we've got at least one of the main tropes of these films here, even if the rest of it is doing its own thing. Yeah, and none of that was storyboarded either. I think the only thing that was storyboarded in that action sequence was him flying off the roof. And that's just, Rodriguez said he wanted to just do, he couldn't have the time to do storyboarding all, you know, for everything. So he just did one main one. That way the Stone Coordinators knew this is the vibe I'm going for. And it was of, of El Mariachi jumping off the roof backwards. And um, later on, we'll see when the, when the friends come over that there's another, just one storyboard he did for that whole scene just to show off the vibe he's going for. So... This is very very good craftsmanship if you're tuning it on the day. That's crazy. Yeah, man. That jump he does, it feels very Matrixy, but this was made before the Matrix. So it that that jump off with the guns, like you say, very John Woo, very Hong Kong, and I love it. Uh so then after that we go back to the ranch, right? With like he he's just a quick comedic moment again with Bucho, just like, how hard is it to kill a guy? It's like yeah. you see a guy you don't know, shoot him. And then, like, the, the cowboy gets singled out. Everyone clears. He's like, I don't know this guy. He has a gun. And then, like, blasts him. It's just hilarious. Yeah. And then when the other guys don't take him seriously, he starts shooting at all of them, and they have to run and hide behind a load of hay bales. <laughs> hilarious. I love that. Um, yeah. And then, so I think we go to the rooftop. Or I don't know what's happening. I think they're at the rooftop looking at the house burn, uh, at the bookstore burn, and then... Um, Mariachi sees Abucho and he finds out who he is to him, which is why he doesn't shoot him. Sama is confused, but you know, well, we're, and, we're confused as well, to be fair. Oh yeah, 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 that's right. I've seen this movie so many times. I forget that we're supposed to be confused too. So he just stopped <laughs> and shoot him. <laughs> um, and then I think he, I think they have a conversation. I think she tells him to call his friends, right? Why don't yeah. you call your friends, Campo and Kino. And so he calls them up and says, Hey, Bring your guitars and you're, and you're and at this point we should already know like you know what that means and yeah so calls I, I mean that that whole sequence um they have that moment where he kind of doesn't seem to know what he wants to do because he's convinced that he's he's he literally says he might just leave and like he's not going to kill bucho which confuses us and carolina but also he's like you have all that money saved up you said that you were safe so you could just leave but then she makes the reveal that all the money was hidden in the books, which have just gone up in flames. So the only thing she has is what she's wearing. She has nothing. There's all of her life has just gone up in smoke. And now the person that kind of caused that is like, yeah, I'm just going to go. And so understandably, she doesn't take that very well. <laughs> I, I actually really like that moment where she's like, do you even care that, you know, this is affecting me? And he's like, yeah, I do. But the way they say it, it's like, 
they haven't known each other that long. So I was really happy that the film didn't go down the route of, oh, of course, you know, uh, we love each other and, you know, we have these feelings for each other. It's like, yeah, they cared about each other, but they didn't go down that tired trope of, oh, well, you know, there's a guy and a girl. Of course, they're going to love each other. They're the two lead characters. It's like that never gets said. That never even gets mentioned. It's just, of course, I care what happens to you. And that, that's more normal. You know, that's that I liked that. And then that's what makes him kind of go, OK, fine, I will call my friends, even though they'll probably destroy the town in the process, even though they kind of don't really. But, you know, that's that's for in a minute. <laughs> yeah, I do love how like, like in, in the town shootout, it doesn't look anything like every other set piece we saw. It looks like it's like totally different set which it yeah. is it, it, it yeah, looks but... like they're in a scrapyard near the town <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think the this film was shot i believe in acuna uh in mexico i think it was actually shot in mexico so they went yeah they it, the... it was shot in mexico don't ask me what town yeah i think ciudad ciudad acuna i believe uh parts of it at least i'm, I'm not sure but uh yeah so then we have the guys coming in we have campo coming off uh i think kino comes off the bus um, yeah, what, one then, comes off a bus, one comes in in a weird-ass looking car. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you come up with this stuff. I don't know how they can come up with this. Have, let's have a big-ass truck with no tailgate. Just, yeah. just a trunk for his guitar case. Um, just great, great, awesome ideas. I'll say that. Um, we have a mariachi praying to God that everything goes okay. <laughs> and then we have them all together in this cool little, you know, three musketeers shot where they're up and, and ready for Bucho's men. And then Bujo's man come into play, and then you know it's a big shootout, great style as always. But the thing that's different is that they have their guitars, and they're not, there's not guns in them. They actually are guns, and so we have uh, Carlos Gallardo shooting like like a machine gun with both guitars. We have the other guy doing like a almost like a half split shooting rocket launchers at the car, and um, and just really inventive, really inventive stuff that and, I, and I could never think of. Every time he did that pose. My brain could hear Florence Pugh saying, oh, my God, such a poser. And I just couldn't <laughs> help but laugh because it's, it's, it's the Black Widow pose, like years before Black Widow. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a great stunt where the guy who plays opponent, the guy who looks like Antonio Banderas, but isn't the guy yes, who casts yes, yes. like, gets shot and flies off the roof. And, and it looks like he lands, but they cut right to when he hits the ground. So yeah. I don't know if there's like a pad there that they just wanted to hide. Um, but there's a that's a great stunt. Just that's pretty high up. And again, the Hong Kong style is hurting your stuntmen, you know. And uh, in this case, in this case, was no different. It looked like she he took quite a fall. So I do yeah, like no, I must admit when I saw that, I mean, because I, a I thought this, you know, that's where they should have had a hand to hand fight sequence, but they didn't. Um, but also, I, yeah. I agreed with you. Like I saw that stunt, and I thought, oh wow, they're gonna land it, and then it cuts. You hear it, but you don't see it. And I thought, ah, oh, that yeah. was weird. It's almost like something yeah. went wrong. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I really enjoy that sequence. Um, it is a kind of weird that they have weapons that are guitars. Um, they're also bulletproof because they shield them from the other guy's guns by like hiding behind them. Yeah. And uh, Banderas <laughs> then has to like roll away and hide behind a car because he doesn't have one of these fancy guitars. He just has a guitar case. Uh, and then he just goes yeah. back to using his twin pistols. The only thing I will say, though, they really build up these other two mariachis. And they are definitely destructive. But 
Banderas is taking cover. He's moving intelligently and he's killing people with just a couple pistols. The other two have a rocket launcher and massive amounts of machine guns. And yet throughout the entire sequence, they never move. They stand out in the open, easy to shoot. And spoiler alert, guess what happens? They die because they get shot because they just stay rooted to the spot. Like, I don't understand the logic of why they chose to just stand there like lemons, you know? Right. Not only does one get shot in the open, but he shoots his own rocket up in the air, comes back down and blows himself up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I do. I do like. I do enjoy that shot. It's like it's again the the trope of like a character not looking back in an explosion. The other guy with, with the machine guns uh, is like just unfazed by the fact that his friend was just blowing the smithereens, and he just keeps shooting the other henchmen. And uh, it's just it's just all style. Doesn't Cause that whole you get a nice shot where Banderas goes back to back with that guy that survived, and they kind of yeah. like spin around and shoot everybody, and then he sees that kid who has been in it a few times earlier. And uh, he's unfortunately been caught in the crossfire. So he jumps over to try and take him away. But whilst he's doing that, Matey runs out of ammo. And you just think, surely he knew that he was going to run out of ammo at some point. But he just kind of stands there like confused, like, why am why are my guns not firing? And then he just stands there <laughs> and then he gets full, full of lead. And you think, really? These were the two people that quote unquote could destroy the town and yet they didn't even make it out of the first fight. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah, they totally had egg on their face there. I love uh, it's it's kind of funny. I, I I like by the way how he reloads by just whipping the the guitar case. I don't know if you noticed that when he's shooting the first yeah, time, yeah, yeah. he's like, I'm like, it doesn't make any sense. None of this makes any sense, but it's just cool. Yeah, because you know? um, the guy yeah. that has the rocket launcher, he reloads by like flipping it over, and he like catches. The, the latch for the guitar case and it goes click click <laughs> yeah. as he likes to put another rocket in oh my god the mechanics on that is so nonsensical but it's cool you know that's Rodriguez he doesn't want to make sense he wants to make cool yeah so yeah so we get El, El Mayachi's pissed he takes Nino to the to the hospital he's not happy so him and Selma go straight to the ranch and confront Bucho uh, Bucho and his men are ready for them and we have the the big reveal, right? That they're brothers. So El Mariachi and Bucho are brothers. Uh, El Mariachi's real name is Manito, and and Bucho is Cesar. And I do like how how like they they reveal the names like that because there was a life before Bucho went into the you know gangster business, and then El Mariachi's name is barely revealed because that's his past life. And so they know each other as Manito and Cesar, while everyone else knows them as El Mariachi and Mucho. And I, I, I do, it is a cool like thing that makes it more personal between the two characters. So, and, and it sucks that um, Antonio was banging the girl that his brother was banging too. So that's very awkward um, <laughs> if you think about it. <laughs> yeah, they they make it very clear in that sequence that the, the assumption that Carolina and Mucho were together at various points yeah that he he flat out says it and also he's got his his henchwoman behind him who again i don't think ever gets a name but she's there and she's also very attractive and it's pretty obvious that bucho is uh showing off and they're completely surrounded and outgunned outnumbered and something unexpected happens which is that they kind of have this weird moment where they're like now they know that each person is their brother. They're both kind of like, well, we can't kill each other now. 
because um, we're brothers. So I guess we kind of just have to be grumpy about it and move on with our lives. And they're like, yeah, that seems about right. And you're kind of going, what? And everyone around them is sort of going, what? But then Vucho makes uh, a mistake in that he decides that the way in which they're going to be even is, yeah, you've killed most of my men, but that's fine. I can I can let that go. They were idiots. But I'm going to kill Carolina because, you know, that's that's fair. You know, you've killed pretty much my entire empire. I'm finished. You know, the Colombians aren't happy with me, so I'll be lucky if I make it to the end of the week. So I'm going to die anyway. So what does it matter? Um, which is, again, is something that can be easily missed if you're not paying attention to what he's saying and the storyline in the film. You know, I think it's the messing with Colombian drug cartels is something that is universally known as not a good idea. So, yeah, he, he has good reason to be upset as he gets in the film because he knows at the end of the day, even if all of his men were still alive, he wouldn't win that fight. He doesn't want that fight, you know? And uh, I can't help but wonder if the fact that he said that is one of the reasons why Mariachi does decide in the end that he can kill him. Yes, he's protecting Carolina, but it's also the fact that he said, I'm dead either way. So it really doesn't matter if you kill me or if you let the Colombians take me apart. In some ways, he was better off getting killed by his brother. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and he gets shot with the with the two sleeve guns from the beginning. It, it's following the the rule of thumb is like if you show a gun in the first act, it has to show up in the third. This is that same thing. His sleeve show up in the beginning, shootout, and yeah. then, and then it comes back for the end for the big surprise that he's like, oh oh. I like how uh, movies do that. Like like you forget about something in their arsenal, and and then it comes back again. Tarantino did the same thing with uh, Christoph Waltz in the sleeve gun in Django. Um, yes. And there's enough time to like separate the two incidents. That way you're kind of like surprised still. And, uh, and then, yeah, in my notes here, I, I put shootout is implied. Um, so not knowing that there was actually a shootout that was filmed. Um, so I was, I was going to ask you about that too. And but now we know the answer. So, yes. Um, although we said, we said it very out of order, but that, that isn't quite the end. So, he kills his brother. There's a flash out. And as we said earlier, there was supposed to be a big shootout. But instead, it just cuts back to the hospital with Banderas uh, over the kid. And he wakes up and he has this cowboy-esque moment where he tells Carolina that he's going to leave. And you kind of think that's the end, but it isn't the end. He then basically, whilst he's walking on the road, she rocks up in a truck and is like, nah, we're not going to have that as an ending. You're going to get in the truck and we're going to go off together, which I thought was a nice change rather than having the hero just wander off. Cause I must admit the thought that went through my head is on what planet would any sane individual willingly walk away from a Salma Hayek that actually wants you? I just was really struggling with that ending. <laughs> Even someone as handsome as Benderas can, it make it makes a logical sense why you would leave Salma. Yeah. <laughs> um, she picks him up in the truck, right? And then he throws away the guitar case, like he's done with killing. And then they drive off into the sunset. But you hear, but you hear the the screeching of the brakes. They come back. He gets it. He's like, just in case. It's a long, it's a long drive. Um, yeah, that's that's a great moment. And that's the end of the film. Yeah. Yep. We finally got to it after after ranting about Star Wars and and the BBFC. To, to be fair, I was going to bring up Star Wars anyway, because it's kind of difficult not to, given that he did the book of Boba Fett, and now we're talking about Desperado. So it's kind of like the yeah. two opposite ends of his uh, career as it stands right now, because Boba Fett is the most recent thing he's done. Desperado was one of the earliest things he did, at least in Hollywood. 
and uh, I, I will definitely be talking about more Rodriguez films. Uh, Machete was always going to be on my list because I love Machete with a passion. I think it's a great grindhouse film. It's still it's full of great action. I wish it had been made a few years earlier because I think everybody involved in that film, aside from Jessica Alba, was really pushing against the point where they can't really play those roles anymore. But, you know, it is what it is. Once Upon a Time in Mexico, definitely going to be on the list as well. But thank you very much for joining me to talk about Desperado. Thank you for having me. I hope I was I hope I was a good guest. I, I, this is my first thing, so I, I hope I was all right. Uh, didn't hijack the conversation or was rude or anything. I, I try my best to be, you know, um, nice and kind on, on social media and through Zoom chats like this, you know. I, I love you guys. And um, when you when I found out you were having a podcast, I was like, this guy is the perfect to do it. He already has a YouTube channel and he, he clearly loves the action genre. And I, I was very excited to hear your episodes. And the thought of being on your show was also a thing like I was like, I hope maybe one day, you know, and um, thank you for having me on. Really, it, it was a, it was a real big pleasure. And uh, I love talking about this movie. Very special movie to me. And um, hopefully I got enough out of my system finally that I can, you know, sit well with this thank you for coming on to talk about it because you know for for me this film is is an enjoyable uh part of my childhood because you know i watched it when i was a kid but it doesn't have the same connotations for me that it does for you so the fact that you wanted to come on and talk about it and say what it means to you what it represents for you uh i'm happy that you were comfortable to come onto this show and do it so from my point of view, it means I'm doing something right because, you know, I, I made a, 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 a conscious thought when I started this that I wasn't just going to cover the same mar- uh, martial arts, the same action films that everybody else has already covered. I will, but I want to do more than that. You know, I'm, I've done Japanese films. I've done Hong Kong films. Uh, by the time this episode gone, has gone out, we'll also have gone into the world of Indian films, which is something I've never touched before. So yeah, Desperado counts, but if there are Spanish action films, which I know there are, and you know there's Mexican action films and uh, the films from all across the globe, I am more than willing and happy to give them a go because I know there's so much stuff out there. It's not possible to cover it all, but I think if you can open your mind to different points of view and to different styles of cinema, and Robert Rodriguez is a great example of someone who very much does things his own way, and to get the perspective of somebody that it meant more to them than just another action film, then why not? That's, it's a great thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Cause for me, this was like a, not only is this a Mexican director, but this is a guy who has his style. He is not controlled by a studio on most of his movies. He is making his own conscious creative decisions. And, and that's a big thing for not only artistic integrity, but for, um, but for Latino voices, you know? And, um, and that's why, I love Desperado so much because it, it, it really is like the um, the outlier in, in the world of like studio mandated films and stuff, you know. And um, so, yeah, I'm really happy to have talked about it and everything again. Again, thank you so much, Scott. You're awesome. And, and you're a wonderful host, man. You're, you're a really wonderful host. And you're really courteous and kind. And, um, I, I saw that in your episodes that I heard with you. But and, and then talking to you now, it's it, you're the best, man. Thank you. Oh, th- thank you. Um, I hope you will come back at some point to talk about another film. Yeah, man. No problem. Hey, 
anime, uh, the, that Street Fighter animated movie. No one talks about that one. And everyone likes to talk about, you know, like the, the 1994 Jean-Claude one. But no one talks about the animated one that has better choreography than the real film. It does. Um, uh, it has better choreography. It has far better lore stuff. Uh, to put it simply, it's a better film all around. I'm not going to lie. Like yeah. I remember the first time I watched it, the opening fight between uh, Ryu and Sagat was like, oh, that three minutes is better than the entire Jean-Claude Van Damme film. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, speaking of uh, the 1994 one, Raul Julia was supposed to be Bucho, I think. Yes, he was. I think I he was casted. Uh, I was going to say that. <laughs> I forgot. Uh, damn. Uh, wait, may maybe this bit, I don't know, maybe you can intercut and be like, oh, by the way, we mentioned Raul Julia was supposed to be Bucho. I don't know. Yeah. He, but, uh, Ra Raul was unfortunately cast, or sorry, he was cast, but unfortunately he passed away before the film could start production, which is a real shame because, yeah. He, he would have nailed this role. Okay, that's the end of the episode. There actually was some more, but I felt like it had gone on enough. Essentially, we were just discussing Raul Julia's potential to be Bucho versus how much of a good job Joaquin did. I think it goes without saying that both actors are amazing and they would have played the role very, very differently, but there's no way either of them are bad and yeah comparing them is kind of a, a waste of time because ultimately they were very very different actors i would have loved to have seen raul's version but joaquin still knocked it out of the park so what's happening next well there might be some bonus episodes as i said last week they don't have dates but uh i i do kind of want to get a couple of shorter reviews out there because, again, I'd, it's not like I want to spend a whole episode on them. But I do want to kind of get my thoughts out on, a, like, say, The Batman, for example. But uh, there are other recent releases that I kind of want to dive deeper into, such as Ambulance. I haven't watched it yet. But, again, I'll make that decision as and when I get there. But I just wanted to say that, you know, I'm saying that the next episode is. But it might not actually be the next thing I upload. So... The next proper episode that's going to come out next Monday will be Cyborg, Jean-Claude Van Damme. And I'm going to be talking about it with Rob Antiquera. He's coming back to the show. He was last seen here talking with me, a Chuck Norris classic in the form of Invasion USA. So I was very excited to get him back on to talk about Cyborg with me. And that was such a good fun talk that I think you guys are going to enjoy it. So look forward to that next week, but that is going to be it after this very, very long and very, very tiring edit for Desperado. Thank you very much. Once again to Chris for joining me on this episode. It was an absolute pleasure having him on and I suspect you will be listening to this. So you rock dude. That's going to be it for me though. Thank you very much for listening all the way to the end and I will see you in the next one. Take care of yourselves, guys. On the action at its podcast.